0: rely on um x hunt when i'm hunting turkeys it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best-tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code meat eater for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat hunt. The Meat Eater podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer.
1: Hey there, I'm Giannis Patelis, and I'm here to read an ad for you today because Steve is up at the Fish Shack having fun with all of his friends, catching salmon, spearing salmon, Uh, diving for scallops, trying to catch halibut, Um, just general, you know, good Southeast Alaska fun. But not me. I'm here in the podcast studio reading this ad for you. All right, but listen up. Very serious. You should get fired up because this is big. This ad here that I'm about to tell you. Are you listening? All right. It's the first ever organization-wide, meaning everything under the meat-eater umbrella, meaning the Meat Eater Store, Phelps, FHF, and First Slight, it's all on sale August 2nd through the 4th, okay? And what's cool about this is that now, under the new shopping experience that you can find on our website, you can do all your shopping in one place, put it all into one cart, and the big kicker here is that you only pay for shipping one time. Um, I've done a little bit of surfing on the uh, new meteor website, but Phil um, has says he's been down in the rabbit hole a few times. Why do you like that new website so Lots much, Phil? I mean,
2: I think listeners know I'm usually not the one to be able to speak to this—the stuff that we sell on our sell on our website. I'm a mm-hmm. relatively new hunter, you mm-hmm. know. I'm not too deep in the waters, but man, if you ha- if you have not been to the website in the last few weeks since it's been updated, if maybe the last time you shopped was before last year's hunting season, check it out. It's great. It's very aesthetically pleasing. Like I'd say, if you had a choice to take a plane to New York to visit the Museum of Modern Art or go to the dot com and check out our new store, I, I, that's a toss up. I'd
1: say check out the store; it's way cheaper, way easier. Okay, I was gonna say like go shopping on Amazon versus shopping on meat at the MeatEater store. Oh <laughs> no, I don't want to compare us to Amazon. I'm comparing us to MoMA. Oh, okay, okay. A couple of the items that you can find that will be for sale is going to be uh, like let, let's start with the MeatEater store. I want to mention that everything that we that is on there is curated by the team. Okay. Cal helps, Seth Morris, Chester, myself, even Steve weighs in a little bit on what we should be carrying in that store. Okay, but it's all like really solid stuff. And even though I might not like use every piece that's on there, somebody in the company has said, I love that gear. I want us to sell that. Okay. At the meteor store, there's Vortex Optics. Uh, trauma kits, booze cutting boards, and our logo wear. You're going to buy the trauma kit first and then the cutting board, but when you're at home, you're probably going to be using the cutting board and then need your trauma kit. So mm. think about that. Be prepared. Uh, first light, 20 to 40% off almost everything, including 20% off the uncompagre 2.0 jacket, which is probably the piece that I use the most out of the whole first light lineup. FHF, 20% off the bino harness. Phelps, up to 50% off select items, including 40% off all Renegade Bugle tubes. So if you're not ready to go metal yet, get yourself a Renegade Bugle tube at almost half off. This might entice you to buy a metal tube at regular price and then get a 40% off Renegade Bugle tube and try them both side by side. All right, so remember, you got three days, August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. You can buy it all in one place. Pay for shipping only once. Four brands, one cart. Get it. It's going to be the season opener sale of all season opener sales. That's a tongue twister. All right. Thank you for listening. All right, everybody.
0: You know we go uh, we go all the way to the top. We we'll go all the way to the top on this show. And that's why we have the president and CEO, the lead figure. Of the Peregrine Fund here with us today, Chris Parrish. Uh, Before we get into it, Chris, Corinne, I I gather you contest the idea that D&D is the primary driver of falconry?
3: We just got to put this thing to bed
0: Uh, (laughs) once and for all. Now, let me tell you my evidence. (laughs) Okay. My well, evidence is this. Well, you asked me. Now you're going to load my, your question. Huh? No, All I right. have my. Here's my evidence.
4: Do you not listen to the show, Chris? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I do. I have a
0: family member. Um, I'm trying to keep it distant so the person, if the person's listening, they don't know I'm talking about them. Like the person that I'm going to get to in a minute. I have a family member who had a roommate who they were way into D and D, and that involved them first having like a lot of serpents. Horrible roommates. <laughs> they had serpents, and that was like a D and D thing. And then pretty soon, they graduated to falconry because they wanted to look like a wizard. Gotcha. And I heard that that was a pretty common path. And then um, developed my theory that the bulk of falconers outside of the Middle East, American falconers, are Ooh. driven uh, are are, in, are are driven <laughs> down that path through D and
6: D. Well, I'm so glad you asked <laughs> <laughs> because, um, well, to, to, to be fair, I mean, I've, I've been with the Peregrine Fund for 22 years. It was founded by Falconers. Falconry is a huge part of the way and how we do our business. But, um, I had to ask Corinne what D&D is. <laughs> so let's start there. And, and, and <laughs> Dungeons and dragons. Okay. If I say everybody. dungeons and dragons, you know what I'm talking about, right? I know a I know the the word, yeah, the phrase. But so, but all your members aren't into that. I don't think any of them are. The falconry and,
3: community is right now applauding.
6: Yeah, no the the falconry community. I mean, if you look at the history of falconry, and you want to talk about the U.S.'s history in falconry, you you have to go back to um, the the conservation movement. And how that's tied to falconry because falconry uh, of three four thousand years ago, yeah, that's Turkey, Syria, Iran, what we call it today, and it's in all the as as soon as art and any art form, whether it's written or pictographs, petroglyphs, anything like that, you see falconry, you see depictions of of husbandry of animals that are depicted as being used to catch prey. Were the Egyptians into it? Absolutely, because they got a lot of falcons oh, and yeah. stuff in there. Yeah. No, they're highly revered. Paul, do they have do they have hieroglyphics? that suggests that's what they were doing with them? Well, and not just that they were keeping them as part of a menagerie. Yeah, because they're on the fist in, in many of these. The the birds are on the fist and the quarry's hanging from their glove oh, much as you'd see I didn't see know today. those guys are big into D&D. Yep.
4: <laughs> I, I was going to say, is there any
6: cuneiform <laughs> of a many-sided die? <laughs> a, of a many-sided die? I'm not following you.
4: That, that's
6: it.
0: It's a tool in D&D.
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay,
0: Which, okay. I only just put that together right now because I'm not familiar. Well, you guys but I remember are, there was like like certain dudes in high school, I don't want to name them. Certain dudes of high school, of which I was friends. I was friends with that. You know, you got like your jocks, right? Your stoners, headbangers, um, ranch kids. Well, we have farm kids. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, you
0: well, your D and D guys, well,
6: who crossed over with headbangers, weirdly, but not stoners. Well, I'm I'm betting that Aldo Leopold probably didn't know about. That. D and D and he said falconry was the perfect sport. Oh, come on. Really? Really? Elder Leopold? Yeah. Yeah,
0: well, he's you know, there's a, there's a dark side to Elder Leopold that people don't realize. So taking he, like seventy five yard Hail Marys with his bow <laughs> with his with his like seventy five yard hail Marys with a long bow at deer and like just kind of shooting over that way to see what happens and stuff. People hunted different back then.
6: But he I mean, liked Falconry. Yeah. Well, I mean he said it was the perfect the perfect sport. Um Fran <laughs> Hammerstrom one of his, uh, uh, I think she was a PhD student. She became one of the one of the, the very first ladies in conservation, and was awarded by the National Wildlife Federation, or whatever it was before it became NWF, in uh, in Wisconsin for her work. And she was a falconer and had great writings about it. And I'm surprised that that given, uh, you know, the the your uh, literate nature of understanding and looking at all these things that, that you didn't have more of those, you know, early Falconers in the U S and, and understood what that was. Craigheads, for example, you talk about the, oh, they were into that. <laughs> Do you know the life had almost, with an Indian prince? I'm going to send you a book. Do you know that? I think it
0: was under the Clinton administration. They considered hitting bin Laden at a falconry camp. Mm, I did not, but didn't because there were, a, there were certain, uh, Saw like high-level Saudi Arabian people present Hmm. in that camp, and they didn't hit the falconry camp. Hmm. I could be messing up a small part of this, but I don't think I'm messing up a big part of it.
6: Well, I tell you, as much as you guys travel, when you're through Boise, Idaho, come to the World Center for Birds of Prey, and on that campus, we share it with the Archives of Falconry. And we can tell you everything about falconry as far back as you want to go. Do you think that? The and there's not a single, <laughs> not a single piece of evidence about, not a many-sided die in the building, not a many. You- not a many- <laughs> <yeah>. Steve, <laughs> you- have
3: you been? Yeah. Have you changed your mind? Uh-uh. Are
0: you- <laughs> I never changed my mind, man. <laughs>
7: I mean, do There's you no think the evolution. issue is that is is they, they don't want to admit, like, they don't oh, want admit they're into D&D?
0: It's yeah, like TLC no, or it. something listen, like that. Like, listen, don't, sorry, falconry community. Fowls. This little bit of evidence here, this little bit of evidence doesn't look well, but I need to do my counter research now.
3: Oh, okay. Uh-huh. I'm not putting it
0: to bed yet. Check <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure. Am I in a strong position right now? No
7: you are going to get so many emails.
0: It's never stopped you before. The funny thing is... I got
7: to think about it more. The good thing is your follow-up argument can come after Chris has left, so... Yeah, well,
0: there's a a quote I heard from someone who once said, um, okay, so I'm wrong. But am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, oh, here's a... I want to talk about this real quick. Did you see this thing uh, Pat Durkin sent? Um, There's a study... Frontiers in sustainable food systems. Okay. Lo- here's the name of the here's the name of the study. Locally procured wild game culinary trends in the U.S. A study of the roughed grouse as entree and accompanying nutritional analysis. And this paper in the in the heading gets into how uh, people who are into wild foods are always extolling the virtues of wild foods, but oftentimes their claims are not well substantiated in an academic sense, meaning like what is actually in-game meat is a different, right? Like you might be like, eating rough grouse better than eating chicken, man, you know? Um, And the USDA has this thing, this like massive thing of all the new, like mineral composition, calories, makeup of all these foods. And these guys did the work to add the roughed grouse. So now you'd be able to find all the nutritional data mm. uh, of ruffed grouse in this USDA database of foods. I'm just going to give you a high, a high level thing. So uh, Rough grouse, compared to highly consumed domestic boneless... Here's where it gets weird. Okay. Compared to highly consumed Domestic, boneless, skinless chicken breast meat. Rough grouse has more protein per 100 gram serving, less calories, and significantly less total fat and saturated fat. The cholesterol content of grouse is also lower than domestic chicken. Much of the vitamin and mineral content of of rough grouse compared to chicken were similar with grouse having slightly higher amounts of iron, magnesium, phosphorus, sodium, riboflavin, and niacin. Chicken meat had slightly higher amounts of potassium, zinc, and vitamin A. And it goes on. But what it gets into the main thing is it gets into the health implications of hunting rough grouse. Of the people who participated in the survey, this makes hunting rough grouse seem like a daunting thing. And it is.
4: Depending on your approach.
0: Depending on your approach, the the (laughs) particulars of the year. But So so the people that participated in this survey. Hunters participating in the survey logged 25 hours of field during the 2017-2018 season. They, on average, took about nine trips a field for the season and have spent about three hours a field per trip. So that's like the rough breakdown of how. So the average rough grouse hunter is spending 27 hours, 25 hours hunting rough grouse. Uh, you generally, each outing for rough grouse is 4.5 miles of walking. Now, if you ran all those stats on eating chicken.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we would be a different nation.
0: The Here's the thing about the toughness of grouse hunting. Uh, so in New York State, okay, this is the New York State 2017-2018. And the hunters spent an average of 19 hours hunting per bird harvested. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Dude, that's mm. a totally lot of walking. Ca-
4: Holy
0: yeah, wow. That is some dim ass grouse hunting. That's why <gasps>
4: a lot of people cow. aren't drawn to upland game. Upland bird hunting. Chucker will cure you. Jeez. Yeah, burns people out mm. real fast. Or like, and then when they get something, they're like, all of that.
3: Like calories lost to calorie gain. Yeah. Less than a pigeon
4: <sighs> worth of meat. Oh, burn away ass more
0: calories than you <laughs> getting out of rough grouse. But that's yeah. like averages and you know, you uh-huh. know what I mean like, who who knows? Um and Right. I think you could run it in different places. Like you could run that for the Western UP of Michigan, the Western Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I think you'd wind up with some highly, some Mm -hmm. very different Mm -hmm. statistics. Mm -hmm. That
7: just makes me question though. My dedication as a hunter because man, if I went out and I got one grouse in 19 hours on average, because I mean what you're hunting for maybe like with dogs, like five or six, maybe hours Mm a day. So what that'd be four days. One grout? No. I feel like I do better than that. i go here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, if people remember, um, so Meat Eater Campfire Stories, Close Calls, Volume 2. And I'll point out that book, that, that, that audio project accomplished something particular for its genre. Because normally when a book goes to audio, like normally when you buy an audio book, you're buying an audio book of a book that exists in print. So when you look at the audiobook bestseller list, like the New York Times bestseller list for audiobooks, is typically audiobooks that were books. So there's the awareness of the book as a print edition, and then it makes like an audio edition. But Campfire Stories debuted and stuck there as a New York Times bestseller in audio, even though it wasn't even a damn book. Volume 2 is out now. Uh, It releases August 2nd. But, of course, you can go and pre-order the thing right now. And it's uh, Meat Eater Stories, Narrow Misses, and More Close Calls. And, and, again, it's like a an immersive audio experience. Better than the first one. Um, we have on there our friend Kimmy Werner who tells a story that involved her and a mentor of hers, and she violates a pact because they had agreed to never tell the story. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite one. Yeah, Mm. it's great. There's a phenomenal story, uh, a near-death experience from our very own Clay Newcomb. Me and my son have a story. We also have stories from a guy who saved his friend's life by shooting at him. Uh, A guy who got into hand-and-hoof combat with a buck. With a buck
3: mm-hmm.
0: in a cornfield. A guy who damn near died after shooting himself in the leg duck hunting, which is a crazy story, mm-hmm. and his life was saved by his dog. You hear that, Callahan? I did hear that. Cal
4: good dog. Right good dog. You better be <laughs> if, nice you're snort. if you're listening, good dog. <laughs> yeah, snort
0: owes you good. one after that rattlesnake incident. She- yeah, right. A sheep hunter who got... Uh, so horribly cliff hung in california that near very near death cliff hung experience just a really really great collection the guy who almost died from his own error oh,
3: that oh, that one
0: it's, it's hard to listen to real
3: hard yeah
0: i got to tell you this is some hard shit to listen to <laughs> check it out <laughs> but no it's like it's just like it's a lot of it's just skin crawling
3: but then you know that the amount of it's blood. It's like a Quentin well, Tarantino. So. It's like a qu- yeah. yeah, but it's called
0: yeah. narrow misses and more close calls. Right. If it was just everybody sure. died in the end, yeah. <laughs> one, it'd be hard to get the stories. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Them being all dead and everything. <laughs> but the amount of blood shed in here it is it is. It's like it's like yeah, watching it's, uh, it's like watching Kill Bill.
3: <laughs> yeah, some stories. In it's like particular. listening to Kill Bill. Oh, you want I don't to want to spoil anything sick.
2: about it, but that one that you mentioned where someone had to shoot at his friend to save him. Just listen, uh, I. It was hard for me to listen to that one. Yeah. But it, it just a great story. Really
0: just interesting. So that's out. Meteor's Campfire Stories. What we're going to do to get a taste for the series. Last time we released the Campfire Stories, we put Sam Lawry's The Mud Puddle and just like built it on the end of the show. So in keeping with that tradition, we're going to do the best shot of my life.
2: That's a spearfishing one.
3: Cam Kirk Connell.
0: About the guy. Well, I don't want to spoil it
2: just stay tuned till the end cuz it's it's awesome. It's
0: got everything in it. You're going to hear um yeah. We're going to tag it on to the end of the show. You'll be so titillated by this little freebie that you'll run out and want to get the whole damn thing so you can have all those hours and it's uh, it's hours of phenomenal stories. polished.
3: And really like Experiential kind of musical score, and you're you're immersed.
0: Yeah, and polished. Not like some dude up there hemming and hawing. Like we we, we like obsess over every minute of of the content. Yeah, yeah, we do. It's very <laughs> good.
3: We really did, everyone.
0: Our good friend Jason Phelps over at Phelps Game Calls just came out with. I, I, I'll 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 tell you this. At one time or another, like I kind of pointed this out, like driving around in like friends' cars, and you. You know how everybody has a bunch of junk in their car on the dashboard or the glove box. I have experimented with probably every <laughs> every elk call, every cow call. I'm not saying mastered or like even made a passable sound. with. I have experimented with probably every cow call on the market at some point or another over my lifetime. I think that, uh, in my view. Phelps' Easy Sucker is the easiest cow call I have ever used under this category that makes a wide variety of sounds.
3: I probably need to get one because I have a hard time.
0: Listen, I don't understand. I don't get the mechanics of it, but normally, so like over the years, people come out with bite and blow calls that are like mono. they, they, They make a sound and everyone that uses them all makes that same sound. It becomes something of a joke, like a good call will come out. And a couple of years later, people laugh about when you make when you blow that call. The alcohol go the other direction because they're like, "Oh shit, it's one of those dudes that one call." (laughs) Um, where you lose that problem is with a diaphragm because you have like like a tremendous vocabulary with a diaphragm. But this one is like one of the problems. A lot of bite and blow calls too, or exposed read calls is it's so hard to get like the pressures of how much pressure with your lips. Or teeth you're putting on it, how much air you're putting through it. It's just a pain in the ass. And this is coming from a guy who thinks game calls are a pain in the ass in general. Uh holy shit, dude. Cal's gonna Cal's <laughs> gonna
4: suck on it. Oh Steven. It's like
1: you don't you don't I'm knowing I've known you too You Whoa. don't you
0: don't Blow on it. You just like, and it's not even like you're sucking. You like, it's like a, like an inhale. Do
3: you like hyperventilate?
0: No. <gasps> Listen. It's like an inhale and, and like slight, and it's hands free. It's just, it's like a green
4: rubber. It's called the easy sucker. Do you like it? Steve's screwing this up a little bit. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So the more complex a call, the, the, the wider range of noises you're, you're going to be able to make, but the more time you need to get into it. And uh, and really start playing because they're like a musical instrument, a kazoo. In the hands of someone who actually has messed around with the kazoo a bunch, can make that Isn't thing sound thing? appealing. Yeah, there's <laughs> people who really play the kazoo. Around Chris, around after
0: you get um, after you get Ron DeSantis and uh, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, Chris <laughs> Pratt, and uh, uh No, who's the gal from NBC? I always want to get on the show, Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow, The, the, Maddow. the Rock, get us a
4: good kazoo player. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 35 minutes of pure kazoo, easy listening. Uh, this is called in Cal's dog. Inhale. (laughs) Cal call. But it's got a bite component to it, so you can actually create some different tones and and pitches. Volumes. Is that included in tones and pitches? Well, I I think there is, you know, there's a limitation on this, which is good as far as like your overall volume. I was messing around with this and, and you can do like some some Little uh bull sounds too, and and some phelps can do, yeah. Phelps stuff, yeah. can
0: do, but he doesn't like to say, he doesn't like uh, to recommend it mm. for
6: bull.
5: Holy, yeah. Oh.
6: He was way out there.
3: I think I need to get myself one of those. I can't blow Dude, they're so the, much fun, the, man. The, they they look the really sharp, too. The call, I still oh, have a yeah. hard time with that
7: yeah.
4: one. Yeah, and for uh, the
7: volume, you can actually get a different insert, right? Like, I think Phelps has a different insert, yep, and so so you can get a, Yeah. so you can get a different, like, a louder call. Yeah, so you can switch them out, and- um, You can take the biggest jackass on the planet.
4: <laughs> the um, See, I'm, gonna, I'm trying
0: to segue into my kids.
4: Uh, unrelated to that, <laughs> I was unrelated,
5: that, that. <laughs> unrelated
0: to that, you could take my children and they can make cow calls with it.
4: Steve's saying they have the experience <laughs> level of you know, a jackass jackasses,
0: or my children. Yes, can crank. It's like oh, you're going to pay for that. Yeah, so you, you <laughs> no, can do no, a lot no, of playing that around with this.
4: That, the <laughs> he
3: wraps up his kids all the time.
4: The the monotone do everything yourself cow calls are are the ones that. Uh, I certainly stay away from, I'd, and I like to pick up one new cow call a year. You do, yep, and just mess around with it and try to find something different. And everybody has like a different read, thickness of read, length of read, etc., that makes a, a different pitch and call. So,
7: um,
3: yeah, I need that one.
7: Yeah, and I feel like we all have that hunting buddy too that. You just know you're going to have to call for it all the time, right? Like you're always going to be the guy in the back calling for him because he's just not going to call. Like I brought that home, gave it to my wife, and it, it was like within a. This two is unrelated min- to what you're just saying. I wouldn't say it's unrelated. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, and it, like within or a or take my wife right, for it. or take my wife for <laughs> take example. But wife. in like a two-minute time frame, I'm like, you're going to be able to call for me. Like mm-hmm. you're legitimately going to be able to call for me now. It's awesome. I love it, dude. Yeah, I'm throwing my other shit in the garbage
0: <laughs> or in a box. Well, <laughs> in my garage.
4: I, I do point out since this is an inhale cow call, there's definitely room for an exhale cow call, of which Phelps makes several uh, external read calls that are. are oh, really, I'm just really saying, good. Catalogs, if you want to pick up a call, if forever. you want to
0: pick up a call and and make a like and make very passable cow calls very quickly, and not just one sound, but a variety of sounds. I would be like this. And then just waste your breath exhaling for <laughs> yep. no reason? And I would say that if I thought Phelps was the <laughs> was the biggest asshole in the world. I'd still say the same thing because it's like an objective reality.
4: It's it's a good one. I like I, I like a minimum of two external read calls because you can definitely jam them up with with gunk and spit and yep. dirt and all the pollen and uh, bugs and I can keep going on with this list. Um, and How about uh, this, mud? this, uh, this is a fun one. This is a fun one to add to the lanyard.
0: Uh, Cal do a plea. Do, do a, I don't want to say one last land access initiative.
4: So here's the deal folks. We, we've been running the land access initiative for quite a while. It's a sweet program. We've had some success under our belt with uh, the Shiloh pond project we're looking for the next one we're still in the active looking phase we've gotten a lot of uh, suggestions but honestly very few out of probably 6 or 700 submissions at this Seriously? point of like of like solid this is the place this is what we want to do like uh, like a project Okay. We've, we've had ideas of projects that, frankly, we, we just don't have time for. You're looking for a whole nonprofit organization that can focus their time on this, of which there are so many. So get off your keister. And, and I've forwarded these on to my friends in those positions. But we are looking for a place that is open to an easement, outright purchase, something that will provide more public access to hunting and fishing. We got a lot of awesome stuff in the works. We got some cash in the fund right now. We got uh, a lot of partners on board to make this happen. Um, oh, we had, a, we had an amazing donation
6: <laughs> offer.
4: <laughs> we have people that want to help so bad that they're giving away houses. Yeah. Little tiny ones that you can trap yeah, out of. place is sweet, though, man. <laughs> yeah, super super awesome. Um, so go to the conservation page at TheMeatEater.com. Click on land access and submit a. The phones are ringing off the hook over here. Okay, Damn. okay, get in line. One eight hundred, get over here right now. eight like hundred. That's right. Click a submit to the land access initiative, and we want. Yeah, we want to find that that perfect thing where we can jump in and help create more access to hunting and fishing.
0: Garrett told me about a couple of the ones that are in there.
4: We have, we have several very good ways to spend money. I think, um, you know, we just just want to find like the perfect thing. But there's we have a, a absolutely phenomenal project here in the state of Montana and Northwest Montana that the Trust for Public Lands is working on, which would be a, a system of easements that would provide access for the myriad of land of many uses activities from firewood cutting to fishing to snowmobiling in perpetuity which is is super cool and attractive there's some incredible projects that uh ducks unlimited is working on in in uh iowa for instance that are are would be money well spent so if you have something that you just want to get active on Please submit it to the Meteor Land Access Initiative.
0: I want to give the dude a plug, even though we're not we haven't moved on it yet. Naughty Log Homes, K N A U G H T Y. Naughty Log Homes. They want to donate a log trapper's cabin. I can't remember the dimensions of it. And they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're, donating a log trapper's cabin to the to the auction house of oddities. They are so serious. one of a kind log home.
8: That's a really cool name. Yeah. Dude, just saying.
4: No. It's... You see, Sean, uh, <laughs> not in Sisters, wood. Sisters <laughs> Oregon. Thing. I know, I know. Sisters
0: of Oregon. Donate the whole damn thing. That's cool. Yeah. That's big. No, it's a great offer. Uh, oh, Sean, you ready to lay out this, uh, about, talk about Delta Waterfowl?
8: Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, and Cal can speak to this too, but, we are, First Light is partnering with Delta Waterfowl for Camo for Conservation. As a lot of you probably, well, you probably heard on the last podcast and seen on social media and all that, that First Light waterfowl pattern, Typha, is out. And a portion of the sales from that are going to Delta Waterfowl. Um, Which you know, I'm stoked about because I love Delta. I've talked about Delta a lot in these duck reports and they've been, yeah, they great share guys a lot of me. information with you on the duck reports. Yeah. Yeah. They're, and I mean, the, the big reason those guys love helping so much is they're duck hunters. The, I mean, they call themselves the duck hunters organization, but they really are. They are, their organization is about helping duck hunters and they're still a research organization. They have their four pillars, duck production, R3, habitat conservation, and research and education. Um, But like their research and education stuff is really keyed and focused on applicable science, right? Ways that they can actually, um, you know, benefit duck habitat, duck numbers, the whole bit. So it's nice to be working with them. Great, man. So go buy some typhoon, kick some money toward Delta.
0: We're just going to make a donation to Delta too.
8: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think every duck hunter should be with what the two big duck hunting orgs have done for waterfowlers. Every duck hunter should be a member of both, anyway. So, so camo for conservation.
4: First light, right now. Prior to Typha, if you bought uh, Specter anything in the Specter camouflage pattern, which is is our uh, camo for uh, folks who like to hide in trees, a percentage of every sale goes to NDA, which used to be QDMA. National Deer Alliance. And now, and NDA, and now it's just National Deer Alliance. Uh, on the waterfowl side of things, anything in the type of pattern, a percentage of that purchase goes to Delta Waterfowl. So you get to feel real good about buying some unparalleled duck hunting camouflage (laughs) and just stuff that's going to keep you warm (laughs) and dry when you need to be warm and dry. Uh, But you're going to feel doubly good knowing that that cache is going to go make more ducks. And one of the coolest things about Delta that they talk about all the time is it was founded with the idea of I want to replace times two or times three every duck I take off the landscape. Mm -hmm. And so there you go. You're buying uh, clothing that you're ideally going to go out and um, remove some ducks from and some geese from the uh, waters <laughs> and, and airways of America. But uh, with with that purchase, you're going to slide some money back to putting them back out times two or three.
0: Good. Good. Okay, we got a guy wrote in from Alaska. So he's, he has this, he wants people to weigh in on this. She says to give some background I am in the military stationed in Alaska and work for a three letter organization that I will omit from this email
8: Boy that makes you really start thinking <laughs> I'm starting to think it all ain't the BLM oh. It ain't IRS
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anyways recently this spring I was successful in a brown bear hunt and have since updated my Skype profile of course On our classified computers, with a photo of me kneeling next to my bear. Pictures very tasteful, not displaying any blood, guts, etc. Well, on Fridays, he goes on to say, we use Skype to conduct virtual meetings weekly to highlight mission successes for each work center in the building. I am currently the highest ranking enlisted person in my work center and am in charge of the missions we conduct. So I was speaking on my team's behalf. And obviously, my profile photo popped up indicating who was speaking. No video on these Skype calls. Shortly after the meeting, my three-letter civilian boss came down to talk to me about mission-related stuff when he was pulled aside by another three-letter civilian. She instructed him that he needs to speak to his team about displaying profile photos with dead animals and that it is offensive to people. He spoke to me about this, instructed me not to change the profile as my photo is not offensive and I am not displaying the bear in a disrespectful way. My question is, if this escalates into something bigger down the road, do I stand my ground and try to push back or do I simply just give in and change it? He goes on to say, in my opinion, I don't understand how this photo is offensive. When my profile photo for the last year has been a photo of me holding a big silver salmon I caught with my fly rod. At what at one point does a dead bear trump a dead fish? Is it the anthropomorphizing of bears and not salmon? Meanwhile, we all walk around in coyote brown suede leather boots. The military is literally walking around with dead animals on our feet. <laughs> Half the civilians sit in luxury leather chairs at their desks. I'm just trying to figure out if it's something I should stand my ground on or just be the bigger person and change my profile now. Here's my take on it. I have a take too. after you. If there was a rule, if there was a pre-existing rule dictating guidelines for your profile picture, and this broke a pre-existing profile picture guideline rule, then you should change your rule. But if you're being singled out for this and nothing else, I would fight back on it.
8: Yeah, John, my, take? My, my take is a little more broad, like, in scope than that. You're in the military, which is purpose is to conduct violence, yet we're, like, <laughs> offended the, I don't understand how people in the military are offended by a dead animal in a profile picture, but the whole point of the military Oh, like you don't is,
0: get like culturally why that would... That, that,
8: that, that's surprising to me. Culturally, it's surprising to Here me. It well, is, and it's uh, a little bit ironic to think about an organization that exists for like violence.
4: I, I think all great points, but um, I would take it down. I would put up something very, very milquetoast that is mildly appealing to everyone who sees it. Hmm. If it's the three-letter organization we're talking about, um, we're talking about what, what are we talking about? regime changes. Yeah, we're talking that's about my point: the <laughs> ability to impact gross national product of any country on the planet. The
3: Culinarians, we're talking of about
4: uh, zero dark thirty. <laughs> um, you're an enlisted man. Okay, change your profile pics. Not worth it. See, here's, here's oh, what. like this bigger fish to fry.
8: Uh, yeah. Th- yeah, they're yeah, yeah. the they're the organization bigger that's going to fry the fish, <laughs> bigger right. bear meat, bigger bear meat to fry. <laughs> yeah, here's why
7: I think huh. you're wrong, Cal. Um, that was so matter I, of fact. Yeah, yeah, like I I don't think this is an issue of like compliance. I don't think it's like an issue of rules. Like I think this is kind of semantics and. Like one of the things we deal with a lot on this podcast and we bring up is like different predator hunting, getting closed down for no reason at all, all over the place. And I feel like, uh, one of our jobs is to normalize it a little bit, right? Like, so it's not mm-hmm. just so, you know, like toxic whenever you do see it. I feel like folding on something like this, taking down the picture or not being able to embrace like something that's a huge part of your life. It detracts from the normalization of something that then we come on here and we tell people like, no, it's a thing that people do and should be respected.
0: And and There's a key Mm. in the language used here is the individuals claiming not that it violates protocol or not that it violates picture rules. They said it is offensive. And I think that allowing people just to run around willy nilly declaring. Yeah, like to declaring something that might offend me as being categorically offensive, I think is, is running rampant. Do you mean like you can declare people, things that the people would never even agree with. So to say like, it's offensive. It'd be like, let's, let's, let's be clear. You find it offensive, but there are probably things about you that would be deeply offensive to me. You have a picture of your third wife on your Mm. profile picture. That's offensive to me why Why have you been married three times? I find that very offensive. Take that down. No one would ever ask that of somebody. Right. Or like, I see that you have a picture of yourself um, not at church on Sunday. That's deeply offensive to me.
8: Yeah, you could make this yeah, is on I, internal yeah, encrypted that, channels. <laughs> but
3: that's, that's like a language thing. That's people stating as fact. Regime change. Just their you can swap out a opinion. dictator. So it's use the, use the I word, everybody. Which,
8: but that's my point, Cal, is like, it is insane that the people who exist to swap out dictators are getting offended by a bear picture.
4: I think we're obviously we getting real into
8: worse. this email yeah. yeah. okay.
0: <laughs> thing.
4: Okay. Let's move
8: on the crab desk. <laughs> yeah.
4: I, I
0: mean, Why are you
8: closing it?
4: your computer, Cal? Oh, cause I'm I'm well read up on this crab situation. But you weren't on the other situation. I was working on some other things. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's what I was getting. at. That's, <laughs> that's what I was getting at. But, From the do crab. Do you have desk, gum for everybody?
0: I, I want to tee up the next this next segment. If there's one thing the media loves, not TV, but if there's one thing newspapers and magazines love, it is a story about someone utilizing an invasive species as a for something or another, hit it, Cal.
4: Yes, that I mean that's that's a great. There's a good couple of question marks in this story. So uh, this distilling company, in conjunction. Uh, I guess I'm not re- all that read up on this. Anyway, yeah,
0: he's quietly opening part. his computer back yeah, up. Yeah,
4: quietly <laughs> opening my computer back up. So there's this green crab, this invasive green crab. They came over in the 1800s, we think, in the ballast of boats. Yeah, I was. They've been was around surprised for a I long time. I have never heard of this crab. And the thing after 200 years of being here. When you do hear about it, though, they're like they are horror. They're horribly destructive on mollusks. They eat clams and and uh, mussels and stuff like that. So obviously it's dipping into some other folks' pocketbooks. They're, they are prolific, and they're, they're an edible crab, but they're so small the yield is really bad. So if you ever gone to a, a crab house and started picking crabs, eventually you might get sick of picking crabs. And that's why folks aren't eating a lot of these green crabs. Well, in this case, New Hampshire Distilling. Took up the problem and turned, and this is where I really right. Here, here's why. I don't like. The,
0: here's why I don't like the language.
4: Tamworth Distillings Crab like Trap. It's
0: not taking up the problem. Like, it's not taking up the problem. Capitalizing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, come okay. On. So, what do you I, mean? I thought it's. It, what do you mean uh, by that? It's like it's not taking up the problem. It'd be like if I started eating. Let's say I eat dandelion salads. Okay, fair. Now I get he what took you up mean. the problem of dandelions in America. He's been eating a dandelion salad at night. Did I take up the problem of dandelions, or am I eating a dandelion salad at night? No, that's fair. I get what you mean. Go on, Kel.
4: So anyway, um, <laughs> they uh, started with the bourbon base, and then they added in this green crab stock. Are along with like bay seasoning and, and kind of classic mm. crab stuff. Mm. Uh, and what you end up with is what they call something better than um, what the hell is the fireball?
3: Oh, that doesn't even better than Fireball? (laughs) Pretty pretty, pretty low bar (laughs) there. No, now I'm not interested. I can't even
8: smell Fireballs. (laughs) Crab Trapper, green
0: crab-flavored whiskey.
3: Wait, where does it say that that's the comparison? Fireball's nasty. Just eat a stick of, like, Big Red.
0: I was just back in my hometown. I went to my hometown gas station, and the guy in front of me, which made me feel so much like I was in my hometown, (laughs) the guy in front of me bought a fistful (laughs) of lotto tickets Uh and then asked for a bottle of Fireball, and they asked if he wanted it chilled or room temp. <laughs> <laughs> and he was able to walk out with a fist. Oh, He's able to walk out with a fistful a lot of tickets and a cold bottle of Fireball.
8: <laughs> uh, uh, I can. Uh, I mean, a go cup. I can't sure even Crab stomach drinking that in the summertime no, yeah. either. It's like maybe in January That's ice so fishing, but
4: there's That's a just uh, gross. there. It still is a bar called the Dew Drop Inn. Outside of West Glacier. Mm-hmm. And um, they did off you know, off sale liquor so you could buy a, a bottle of liquor there. And this is the only place that's ever happened to me, but if you go in there and, and buy a bottle of liquor at the bar, they say, Would you like cups and ice with that? <laughs> <laughs>
8: I love America. You like it,
6: not with it, but I like it in addition to. <laughs> have you been on the on the Kaibab um, right there in Fredonia? You come down the hill off the Kaibab Plateau, and it's the center of the universe. Judd Otto. Guns, ammo, lotto, and beer. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, so there, there is a good snippet here on the, on the green crab. They are probably one of the most successful invasive species that we have in North America, at least in the marine world. They can eat about 40 mussels a day, just one crab. Wow.
3: Holy shit.
4: Each bottle has a pound of green crabs and That's impressive. That is impressive. And, and my immediate deal, I sent this to some folks in the in the culinary world because I wanted to understand if there's, what is the demand for like a good crab stock? Yeah. So, you know, you, you don't mm. go through the, the worry of picking everybody. You just turn it all into a giant vats of crab stock if there would be like a, you know, canned crab stock type of market. I imagine there is, and that seems a, a hell of a lot better way to go than making it into something better than
7: yeah, fireball. I wonder what the hangovers are like. <laughs> like if you huh. got see- feeling
8: crabby, bro. <laughs> yeah, you know, wake up in the morning, feel like you're rolling on a boat.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, except for you're walking sideways everywhere you go. <laughs> Can we,
3: we probably can't get this here in Montana. If anyone at Tam Tamworth Distilling wants to send us a bottle at Meteor, yeah, we'll have a us, Yeah,
0: uh, a marine biologist goes on to say, like, you know, it's unlikely that this whiskey, that this whiskey bottle in the Enterprise is going to have a serious impact. But she says, someone goes on to point out, I'm not reading it carefully. To know who points it out? They go on to point out. If you factor in producing fishing bait with green crabs, whiskey with green crabs, fish sauce with green crabs, and just more and more incentivize the use, um, could be good. You know, one of of the invasives that I felt that you could most, like, kind of get after in a way that felt productive is shooting lionfish. Yeah. Because you go, like, in the Bahamas, we just rent a boat and go out and cruise for coral heads. And it's just sand, 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 sand. And then there's coral heads. You can see them from a million miles away on a sunny day. And you'd go to a coral head, and every coral head you go to go to would be like, oh, lionfish, or two lionfish. And
3: they're easy to get. Yeah, right? and they're like, they, don't they just really stand move. their ground. Yeah. Like, they don't,
0: it's not in their mind to get away. They stand their ground. And so you'd shoot them, and you'd be like, this coral head is free of lionfish. And then you move on to the next one and shoot those, move on to the next one and shoot those. And it seemed like, well, God, he seems to be able to kill them all. But, man, they haven't gotten that problem solved yet. No,
4: the incentivize that that's when Steve started the intro to this segment here he is correct like we love talking about like good uses for these invasives and and the one that they've gotten the most use out of by and large of something that we see as a real problem are it would be the asian carp species mm-hmm. and so there's some school uh, some collegiate school programs that their culinary programs utilize, you know, several thousand pounds of of fish every year um, in their, their meal halls. And they're making actual, you know, tasty stuff. But then in uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, there's some actual per pound incentivized fisheries and, and processing facilities for these fish where they've actually, there's enough incentive, government incentive that, folks who commercially harvest uh, catfish or buffalo or paddlefish, which they call spoonbill out there, um, can switch over net sizes and start targeting specifically the Asian carp, which there are some food markets for and there's some fertilizer markets for and and stuff like that. Uh, And it's definitely something that we we need to get a, a hold of, which is why you know, crabby whiskey, Yep. get some, get some headlines. And it says that there is no, uh, no real, uh, market around green crabs. So if something got started, it would be the first ever.
0: Yep. Uh, I'm going to give you some very dated insight into the carp problem, the, the, the Asian carp problem and differentiating it from the common European carp, which infests all of our waters, many of our waters. I, I, I spent some days with a guy that was a commercial netter, okay? Um, he was doing a lot of stuff that would wind up. He was catching a lot of those carp, and his primary buyer was using them for making gefilta fish. So, like, no canned fish preparation. And they're very concerned in those waterways about not catching, like, the native fish. I'll add that we caught a beaver, but that's just a side note. And so they'd regulate mesh size, Okay. And he had to use whatever, like an eight-inch mesh or some shit, like a huge mesh. That way all the bass, right, like large largemouths, bluegills, crappies, everything can get through the mesh. But It was a big enough mesh to, kept the really, to catch the really big carp. And he said you could go into a stretch, the commercial guys could go into a big stretch of river with that high, that big mesh netting and really get it where you're not catching carp anymore. Like you'd catch them. It's it's just very, the way they use these seins is oh, very effective.
4: Oh, after they come through, you're not catching. They can anymore. work
0: an area. Let's say you'd use an eight inch mesh. You can work an area with an eight inch mesh where you're like, we're just not catching them. Like we did. We must be having a positive impact. But then researchers would point out the biomass of the carp doesn't change. Like the the poundage per mile of carp in these stretches doesn't change. It's just not comprised of big ones, right? And so then it'd be like, we need to be able to use smaller mesh. We need to be able to use, do a six-inch mesh. And then people be like, well, you know, it could have ramifications for bass or whatever. And they use a sitch. And then you kick ass with the new mesh. And then your catch slows. Meanwhile, per mile, same poundage of carp.
4: Which, which is why you see the- Like it's, a, it's carrying capacity, right? In this conversation around carp specifically, you see a lot of- prevention in the form of how do we get these fish to not spawn mm. where you see like those bubble curtains and aerators and stuff that uh try to divert fish from areas where they would spawn
0: got it got yeah
4: it. it's a hell of a
0: i visited that electric problem. barrier on lake michigan where we they are trying to keep them from entering the great lakes i don't know if that's still up and running or not A guy, when I I was talking to people on that cart problem, he was saying, like, I was like, what would actually fix the thing? And he said, what would actually fix the thing and we'd never use it or be able to use it and you wouldn't have public appetite for it? He goes, I could imagine there's got to be some kind of virus or something that's particular, but. Who's gonna be the guy? that mm-hmm. Pours that mm-hmm. out in the river. You know mm-hmm. <laughs> who
8: wants to play with the virus? Yeah, like, right now like he's
0: like mm-hmm. like path. There like there's like if you really like, like there maybe is some pathogen. Our yeah.
4: controlled studies say <laughs> that nothing nothing will go wrong. Nothing bad happens.
0: Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids... We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. OnX just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings on x hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to hunt and fool who i use for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to hunt reminder so you never miss another deadline stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024 check out on x hunt research tools Free for all on X Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code eater to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com/hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated doesn't matter outdoor events turkey hunting playing sports beach days mountain adventures summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick it's clear why liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in america tear pour live more Uh, am- lead ammunition. Yep, and we're gonna kick it off with Sean's duck report. Oh, huh? You got anything else to say?
8: I say it's duck season, and I say fire. <laughs> you bet. You had mentioned I don't know a month ago or something. Do a duck report on <laughs> do a duck report on lead poison, duck or, or, elf. Uh, the lead shot ban. What led up to it? Whether it was successful? So, Chris. If I get something wrong here, which I'm pretty sure I don't have anything wrong, you're going to have to correct me because this comes from your world, really. I
0: was raised at a
8: time. I can't, do you remember what year it happened? Yeah, they tried several times, but when it ultimately happened was 1985.
0: Oh, because, you know, it's interesting. My first legal duck season was in 1986, and there were people that were not duck hunting. They yeah.
8: were, they were like, quitting duck hunting uh, out of protest. Yeah, and that—, that Some of them stuck. Some of them just never came back. Okay. Which is wild. Lay it on us. Okay. So the lead shot ban um, was a gradual crescendo. Late 1800s, there started being reports of lead poisoning and waterfowl. In the 1800s? Late 1800s, yeah. They had a mass kill. Because guys like me and Spencer with them punt guns. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was mostly like commercial market areas mm-hmm. that were got it punt gunning whole lakes. Um, Texas, 1874, they really started reporting it. Really? Mm-hmm. And then in the early 1900s, it turned into mass die-offs. Yeah, because smoking wasn't even bad for you back then. It's just <laughs> surprising. You know, I, don't yeah. mean be, I
0: don't mean to be glue about it. It's just surprising yeah. that at that time... There was like the level of sophistication to take dead waterfowl and determine cause of death, right, and, and relate it to a related to a heavy metal.
8: And, and some of them weren't even making the correlation necessarily right away. They were like, "There's a bunch of dead ducks here," and then they do a necropsy and find they just also happen to have lead in their gizzards. Got it, and. That, that's really where it started. Um, then you get into the early 1900s, and they started having, like, mass kills, um, hundreds and hundreds of birds. On a single body of water. hmm Repeatedly, yeah. seasonally. Yeah. yeah. And, it, yeah, it, it definitely kept going faster and faster and more and more. Uh, I, am I correct in this, that the, the issue with ducks
0: is that ducks are as they gather grit for their gizzard they are finding lead shot and ingesting the lead and In, like ingesting the
8: lead for grit for their gizzard this isn't that they're all carrying around stray pellets well it's no it, it's not from it's definitely not from wounder, wounded hunter wound okay. it's it's mostly ingestion Okay, so um, they're like
0: picking they see something like oh that make a piece of great piece of grit for my crop
8: yeah, and I mean they're getting it in both their gizzard and their stomach. It's not like just as so they're picking up while they feed. They're picking it up while they feed, and people think, "Oh, how are they picking up that tiny little pellet in this big lake?"
0: Well, but but it has it doesn't get to their stomach without going through their gizzard.
8: Well, what I what I mean is like that they're finding the lead shot in both places. It. It's okay. not just poisoning them in the gizzard. Yeah, it'll pass. It's passing intact. Yeah, Into the gut. And there's a lot of comparison photos that the Fish and Wildlife Service had that shows, like, a normal duck's healthy stomach and healthy gizzard to a a lead-poisoned one. Um, But, you know, one of the big pushbacks from Hunter, and I did not realize how controversial this was until I started really digging. And see, this was interpreted by a lot of outdoorsmen as a anti-hunter, anti-Second Amendment government overreach movement. Um, was not positioned as that, or was positioned. Hunters as that. thought that's what it was, sure, yeah. right? Um, but, and, you know, the one of their big arguments was, how is a duck picking up stray pellets, you know? They're tiny little pellet. Because I've never seen it. Because, right, <laughs> right. But... Well, that's, we've had a lot of people write in to be like, I have checked every stomach
0: and every gizzard of every duck and they've killed a lot of ducks and like, and I found a pellet. Mm.
8: So, uh, you know, I it's anecdotal, but we hear that. Right. Right. Yeah. um, But when you start breaking down, like how much lead's being dispersed on the environment, you know, there's half pound. So the average back then was a half pound of shot being, you know, shot by a hunter Per bird bagged, which comes out to 1,400 pellets of number six lead. And, you know, that's per bird you shoot. Overall, their estimate was 2,400 tons of lead shot being put into wetlands a year by waterfowl hunters. And there was. And what year was that? That was in the 50s. Okay. I think. Um this is guy, the guy that did this big study on this was a guy named Frank Belrose. and he was the one that really brought it into like we got to do something about this we need a management plan about lead shot and that was in 1959.
0: Yeah, like one of these things you have here in One Lake Michigan bluebill die off 10 stomachs were examined that held anywhere from 40 to 80 lead pellets per bird. But I'm not saying that this guy was cooking the books but but <laughs> People are still hunting ducks, yeah. But there's not like why is the why are the crops and stomachs not full of shot?
4: I think one thing that would be really interesting to look at here would be your your hunter distribution, right? Like and methods of hunting during this study time, because mm. I, I do have to wonder if there's higher concentrations on certain marshes, sure. bodies of water, then than we could have how that distribution of actual hunting activity varies fr- from then until today.
8: Well, Sean hit him with that little detail you got in there uh, that little detail about a heavily hunted wetland. Yeah, so and and that was a big part of it. You know, the argument is now a lot of that lead shot has been covered up by sediment cuz that so they did a bunch of sampling of major wetland areas that were like huge waterfowl hunting destinations, and they found some of those to have over 100,000 pellets per acre in the top three inches of the the bottom sediment, which is so many.
0: Oh, see, Sean did a good job, because here now that I'm looking in here, Oh, okay, from 1938 to 1954, they examined 36,000 gizzards. Mm Mm-hmm. 6.6% between 1938 and 1954, 36, a sample size of 36,000 gizzards, 6.6% ingestion, right? Had lead in them with mallards, 7%. So there you go. Go kill a hundred. So here's the test for someone now, someone who's like going to be like, bullshit, man. (laughs) Get a hundred ducks. Check especially if you desert. hunt like a, especially you hunt like a refuge, like like you hunt a place that gets hunted. Okay, yeah. go to a place that gets hunted, shoot hundred ducks, and see if you find seven percent that got a steel or bismuth pellet in their gut. Mm-hmm. Be interesting if if it's constant through time.
8: Yeah, yeah, and so okay, so where where it kind of like really got to the point of people having to do something about it was these die-offs started becoming highly visible, right? You had TV and, um, one that like was right, perfect at the kind of the right time in the seventies when this was getting talked about more and more. And I think it was the national wildlife Federation had already started trying to push for a lead ban fish and wildlife service wanted a lead ban, but they couldn't get it done. Um, Lake Puckaway, Wisconsin. They end up with like over three thousand geese dead that were wintering there, and the, the what ultimately what they said happened was these geese wintered on a part of the lake that was shallow and had a lot of hunter, um, hunter use, and what year was this? Um, I can't remember exactly what year that was. It was either the late 70s or early 80s, but it was right during the peak of the discussions around it. So the debate was heating up. And then there's all of a sudden on TV, you know, a bunch of volunteers collecting thousands of dead
0: geese. 3,000 dead geese in a lake that had 118,000 lead pellets per acre in three inches, top three inches. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's so wild. It's a lot of dead geese. I'm trying to picture like... Um, an acre is a good size chunk of ground. I'd like to see a density map. Mm -hmm. Like if you did a one hand, if you took your two hands and did a scoop of muck, you probably
8: grab one. And I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm sure it would probably be, there would be something about how it lays out. Right. There would be areas probably with a lot higher density just by how someone hunts the area or whatnot. Yep.
4: Um, but, you know, Oh yeah, prevailing wind, right? Just yeah. like, I mean, just like if you're uh, point. someone who uh, knows where to look on an old pond for arrowheads, for bird points. It oftentimes has a lot to do with the prevailing wind. Oh, got it. For mm. the area. Mm. Find your shotgun pellets around that same spot too.
8: So, but, you know, uh, Bellrose's point was not that these mass die-offs are like a population threat. It's that there's so many other factors that come in once waterfowl start dying from lead poisoning. Um, for example, takes them two weeks to die. They start getting weird, isolating themselves, hiding in the weeds, making themselves more susceptible to predators. In addition to that, then you have, you know, he, he even pointed to like, you can't even really count or know exactly. How many botulism outbreaks, for example, are because a lead poison duck dies and then you end up with a botulism outbreak because. Because of why? Well, just ultimately, if the more, you know, the more you have waterfowl dying in random places. Increased more... abundance of carrion. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Mm-hmm.
6: Overloading the system where scavengers are cleaning it up. There's great examples about that, but that's a different one.
8: And uh, so they tried to to ban, ban lead in 76. The Stevens Amendment blocked it, kicked that back to the States. And then that's where raptors came in and bald eagles in 1985. What happened in 1985? Well, they had 65 bald eagles from 1980 to 1985 died from lead poisoning. And the National Wildlife Federation was um, sued Fish and Wildlife Service for a ban on lead shot referencing bald eagle deaths. And they actually blocked the suit because then fish once that suit was like happening, Fish and Wildlife Service said, okay, we'll ban lead. So this court case doesn't happen.
0: The National Wildlife Federation led the
8: suit. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it never, it it got dismissed, but oh, I got that right. Because bald eagles at that time were in ESA. Mm-hmm. They were an endangered species. That same year they got species. kicked to threatened, I think. But yeah, they were on the ESA still.
0: So. And of course, why did people care? Because the replacement was steel shot and it didn't work as good as lead
8: shot. Yeah, that's what people said. Right? Well, yeah, more oh, expensive. It just didn't. I mean. Right, but, um, okay, that, that is a... Steel <laughs> shot, yeah.
0: there's stuff now that works phenomenally well. Yeah. But I, I think like any, you know, you had to switch to bigger pellets. Yep. Right? So yep. You, you used to use sixes and leads and also mm. using twos and fours. So you're throwing, I want to say less lead out there, less material <laughs> out there. You're throwing out less material per shot with, with a, a smaller number of lethal things flying toward the target in the air. Yeah, this is a whole... It just is.
8: This is a whole nother duck report, though. Um, It's talking about, like, the steel shot lethality table and all the work Tom Roster did going into showing that steel is far more effective than it gets credit for. Okay. Well, and wounding loss and harvest rates,
6: actually, while they did decline initially after the ban this the, the what they posited was based on their observations is as hunters learned how to use the new tool wounding loss actually was less with
8: steel than it was and that because they're like I, were because learned, they're like I don't have lead I, so I can't take I that can't Hail Mary to, <laughs> I can't shoot wait to land. anymore yeah and so, a yeah. big part of that is you know lead and steel shoot. Differently, yeah. The uh, speed, just, yeah. Of steel. Everything about how you shoot as a shooter is different. Um, and it was not, you know, like one of the things that
0: when people talk about the Pittman-Robertson Act, I really like to point out that people were like really excited about it. Hunters wanted it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When when the <laughs> they don't maybe some don't now. According to what's the name to the news the Clyde. guy, in Geor- Clyde in Georgia. <sighs> we covered oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's it's like part Montana of the too. part of the. Story of Pittman Robertson and the excise tax on ammunition—that it was brought by the Rod and Gun Clubs of America, like they wanted mm-hmm. this, they they willingly did this, right? And um, this was not—we
8: lose sight of it now, but this was not a popular thing. No, I mean there was definitely some waterfowl hunters there. You know there was appetite for it with some, but not everybody—not even close. Yep. Um, some people welcomed it and didn't want didn't want to see lead poisoning in waterfowl and, and, you know, bought in on the Bell Rose study and seeing how, how bad lead shot could be on waterfowl numbers. But also there was a lot lot of people that just don't want to quit shooting grandpa's gun with the fixed full choke and the 30 inch barrel. Right.
0: Oh, Oh, you know, real quick, tell me about the guy that, uh, tell us a story about the guy, you know, that was jailed for shooting a red tail.
8: Well, hold
4: on. I think th- that Sean's point there is is a great one that uh, doesn't get brought up hardly at all. Is the fact that not only were you forced to use a different ammunition, there is a ton of guns in use, like heavily in use, that could not shoot steel. Mm-hmm. Couldn't the, shoot a pellet that that's at hard. The time. <laughs> Too hard on the barrel. At that time. At that time, well, yeah. Well,
6: because the loads hadn't been developed. I mean, you look at what they've done in Europe in the last 10 years. They are shooting steel out of Parkers and Purdy's, but yes. they're adjusting the loads. So by adjusting the loads and decreasing the pressures, you can still you the. It's not that you can't shoot them; you can't shoot the loads that they had then.
4: Well, I mean, here in America, it's bigger is better. Okay, I'm so, <laughs> not going to shoot well, a, ten, a two and, and a half ounce load. You
0: know, to be you know, fair, fair bigger is better. Thing is, uh, I was talking to a the, a guy called the Jet Doctor. And we were talking about, I was having a problem matching a jet outboard to a flat bottom boat. You remember my whole trial tribulation. <laughs> and I, one one day, was entertaining over the phone with the jet doctor the idea that perhaps there's like, is it perhaps too much engine for the boat? And he said, I've been in this business 40 years. I've never had a guy come to me and tell me he want,
8: he needs a smaller motor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you see walleye boats with 400 horsepower racing motors on them. It's like unbelievable. All
0: right, talk about the red tail dude
8: real quick. Um, Or slow, I don't care. <laughs> oh, well, there's not much to it. I was a little bit wrong on that. Oh. It was not one red tail. Oh. It, it was one it was, it was one blue red tail red tail. It was one red tail with a game warden with him was the problem. Yeah, so he uh he was working at a pheasant hunting farm, you know, in South Dakota, like a lot of people do, and was shooting red tails while he was out guiding pheasants because, you know, red pheasant hunters. Yeah, pheasant hunters hate red tails. And uh well, that's a, that's a gross... Okay. That's you know what I mean, though. Yeah. like
0: You'll hear stories. I would hear stories from yeah, guys like... I would hear stories from the generation prior to me who'd be like, if you hunt on so-and-so's farm, he gets mad if you don't shoot the red tails. Right. Which is like a... a, a I'm sure it's still out there, but I think yeah. that there was a time when... Well, they used to pay bounties on them, right? There was a time when it was like you were doing the right thing for the planet by killing every
8: <laughs> raptor you saw. Yeah. Because chicken farmers would thank you... You know, whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So he, I don't, I I don't know exactly how many he shot, but he did get like six months federal prison time plus three months probation plus, or no, not uh, three months house house arrest plus four years probation, big fine. Yeah, we were talking about this. You could he could have killed his wife and landed in jail for less time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he did some. He did some. I mean, that's serious time. Yeah, Six like, months in federal they like, prison. Like, what, what are you in here for? Oh, <laughs> Shot a hawk <laughs> with a game warden. And the, I think what they really got him on was after he shot it, he then picked it up, moved it, and buried it, um, which is like uh,
5: even worse. On top of all
8: that, on top of all that, <laughs> lost his hunting
0: privileges for four years. Okay. Mm-hmm.
6: Well, and the sad thing is, for a lot of those things, there there are depredation permits for instances. You know, I'm not saying that they're justifying the killing of raptors, but where it does, you know, impact an individual's livelihood, there there are ways that to, for that to be managed. But to to say loosely, "quote unquote" managed is, you know, that's different than wanton shooting. That where I grew up too, the same thing. You go out there, and every third telephone pole's got a red tail at it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, but that's changed in my lifetime. That's changed drastically. So yeah.
0: Okay, give me your spiel on. Uh, I don't want it to be a spiel. Which one do you want? Don't deliver it like a spiel. All right.
3: He never does. He won't.
0: Chris, okay. For this, I'm trying to think where it's talking
4: to the microphone.
0: Okay. All right. Was, you talk, I can quiet. hear myself You're breathing. Relaxed. Relaxed. I didn't know I breathed so. Loud. I <laughs> I want to. Pro- <laughs> I want let, to. Let's approach it this way. All right. When people are talking about. Um, when people are talking about lead in the environment today from hunters and shooters, okay. There is a widespread idea that this has something to do with the California condor. Oh God. That's okay. That's the lead in. Raise your hand. <laughs> well no. I, I'm trying to find an avenue of approach. Raise your hand if you feel that if you're made aware of the issue years ago in relation to the California condor. Okay, everybody, okay, even
6: Chris races. <laughs> <laughs> I'm relatively new. No. Okay, well, yes, unfortunately, unfortunately, people think that this lead issue led from hunting or the otherwise shooting of animals, whether it's depredation, whatever you want, whichever category. it's It's assumed that it's only a problem because of the condor. Or that was people's avenue to introduction. Absolutely. And, And from a scientific perspective, because we were focused on the condor, because it was a species at such heightened level of endangerment, only 22 birds left, and trying to figure out what was going on with them and saving them from extinction, not just for the sake of saving them, but for understanding what the hell's going on because the the condor could you could argue that the condor has been on the road to extinction since well before the the end of the last ice age right that, that's a that's a mm. point i hear
0: that with well, you'll get into it,
6: yeah. Like with, with the megafauna uh,
0: extinctions, yeah. oh, and yeah. it, okay, all yeah. that stuff.
6: Yeah, and the range reduction that was observed based on the recovery of fo- of fossilized remains and all that stuff. That's that's what we use as inference. We don't know that's what happened. We just have inference that there was a tremendous range reduction. Condor bones have been found in Florida, upstate New York, Texas, um, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, huh. every all over the place. But that's it like, was a ubiquitous bird. Uh, well, I, it was it in, was in this... widespread. Yeah, and okay. and when you as you come to know more about the condor, and this is the key, as you come to know more about the condor, you come to know more about the fact that they can fly states away in a couple of days. They can fly up to six hundred miles in a couple of days. And then by the time we biologists get up there to go find out what the hell it's doing, it's on its way back. Mm-hmm. So that that then tells you it's not that condors were so dense they were all across the U.S. Is they had the ability to travel widely. And, of course, it would be seasonal based on all, all their their biology. Learning about the natural history of a species, a single species, anytime you study it to the level we've studied condors, you learn more things about the greater environment. That's the benefit of the scientific process and what we glean from studying a species we did happen to come to find out that the number one cause of mortality for the California condor range-wide in the reintroduction since 1992 is lead poisoning. Now, there were there were suppositions. Throw in here how that's determined. Oh uh, uh, well, when birds are tracked with telemetry, when they're tracked with telemetry, both GPS and VHF telemetry, because. Honestly, because there are so few of them, you can track them on an individual basis. And because they were so endangered that the birds are monitored at individual basis. So when I came onto the scene as a a state biologist for Arizona Game and Fish, there were six of us out there in February of 1997 watching six condors. Hmm. And those were the first birds released December 12, 1996 which I thought was cool as hell because we're out in the Vermilion Cliffs, which is also a really cool sheep spot. So, you know, like we're going to scan for condors and while they're sitting there, we can scan for sheep and there's some pronghorn there and uh, we're getting paid for this. (laughs) I didn't know you could have this as a career. But anyway, my point is we had six people watching six condors. Mm -hmm. And while that might seem crazy because do you really need to study them that much to really, you know, understand? Well, I would argue that, yes, if you want to know what affects their survival or lack thereof, you do need to study them that way. So as we study them and and we we were able to monitor the way in which a, a species that once ranged in the Grand Canyon region, we're now reintroducing them. And there's all these big questions out there. Will they find enough food? Because one of the early posits in the thirties as to why their populations were declining is because there wasn't enough food anymore. The bird's too big, the, or the bird's too big, or or they eat too much and they can't fly afterwards, or they the uh, uh, the all these different things that you hear these old wives' tales. <laughs> such a
8: wild one. And, and
6: for me, as you know, look, I I grew up outside of Bakersfield, California, in a little farming community. So it was the oil field and the farm and cattle. That's where I grew up. To me, the way I it was introduced to the California condor is, uh, oh, it's an endangered species. It's going to ruin our life. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. And so as I studied more and more biology because of my interest in hunting and angling only, and then I found out you could have a career in it. And the more and more I studied, I realized that, you know what? The problem wasn't the species and the problem wasn't us ignorant, you know, hillbillies or rednecks out in button willow. The problem was there's a, a disconnect between science and the people of the communities. And there's a lack of trust because of this inability to communicate because one of the ranchers that I worked for was a son of an original homesteader in the southern San Joaquin Valley. He, as a kid, saw as many as 50 condors on a cow carcass as a kid. He had natural history in his experience and knew more about condors than the people who were studying them right as the last one was taken out of the wild in the 80s. And I thought, man, if we could just get these two folks talking there would be a shared understanding of the landscape and what's happening that would be far greater than just science or just somebody who says yeah they're on they're on their way out because that's the way of the you know that's the way of god's creatures they go extinct so we would have thought had we not studied the species we could have thought that they were just on their way out uh hit real quick you just said it but
0: the last one was taken out of the wild i think it's important beautiful oh, important yeah. point to get that like there were so few that they were all yeah. the living ones were collected.
6: Well, yeah, because they were declining so steeply. Yeah. And that's only been since, you know, since they started being studied in, studied in earnest in the 20s, 30s, and really a, a pivotal study by Carl Koford in the 40s. Well, there was a break because he had to go to war. But when he got back, he finished it up. That's the way folks were back then. <laughs> um, anyway... Um, the The population was in such deep, steep decline, and there were all these theories. One is there's not enough food. The other is you know goofy things like they're so dumb they're just not surviving. Well, from a biologist, a a burgeoning biologist like myself, and kind of a kid of the landscape, I was like, you know, would nature really produce a loser? Because it seems to me evolutionary biology hones and polishes every species to its finest representation as a wild animal. So why all of a sudden are they struggling? It's got to be a major imposition on the landscape or something that's going on. Mm-hmm. And then there were people said, oh, it's 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 LA, you know, it's, uh, they lost their habitat or condors are so sensitive that if you, if they see somebody and they're sitting on their nest, they'll abandon their nest. But once again, from just basic biology and my experiences as a hunter and angler, I was like, does it, does nature build something like that? It doesn't make sense to me.
4: Right, or find me the other comparison. Yeah. Because if one behaves like that,
6: yeah. there's something
0: else. Well, it, there are yeah. a host of things that are sensitive to development.
6: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, and there's that little town, you know, Los Angeles, right there in the core heart of their range, right? Yeah. But if
0: you look I mean, at the... That, like, that they eat so much and they can't walk around and get killed? Okay, I'm like, well, but that would always have been the case. It, and, and, and But it, the idea that Habitat- the idea that you had like a habitat issue that doesn't a, seem to be as silly as like some other, other things you thought.
6: Oh, no, you can rank them. You can rank them. But, I'll, but yeah. I'll tell you, I'll give you a few examples about how by reintroducing the birds and studying them to the degree that yep. we have, we've really narrowed it down. Set aside, you know, there were also some who said, and if you look at the early writings in um, Audubon, for example, I'm not, I'm not bashing Audubon here, but Audubon was against the, the collection of the birds and starting a captive flock. And and you, yeah, I know you've probably read this. It was in uh, Matheson's book, America's what was it called? Wildlife in America. I read it, but I don't remember it. Yeah, he talks about that. That that look, we need to 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 conserve these birds and prevent their extinction, and then maybe understand why they were going extinct, because it may not only benefit that species, it may benefit our understanding of the ecosystem, which would be far greater use. But you have to collect these birds and, and retain them in captivity. So that you can go and figure out what the problem was. Because by the time they were studied intensively, their population was already in such a steep decline that a captive population was the only thing that saved them from extinction. So December um, uh, Easter Sunday, 1987, the last wild condor was captured and removed from the wild. How'd how they catch it? Uh, you you got to go check this out. You guys would dig this. A pit trap.
5: Like a they dig a, hole, dig a
6: hole. Dig a hole. Put a, a, a netting across you, fill it with debris and things to hide, and put a, a dripping, rotting carcass on top of that and lie under it in wait so when the bird comes and lands, you can grab it by the legs. Who's the guy to grab that? I think it was Pete Bloom, who yeah, still is. That's, that's a great thing to have on your tombstone. Yeah, right. Grab the last kind, Greatest catch on her. <laughs> it's one of the same ways that falconers. Not he's still alive? Pete Bloom, yeah. How old is he? Yeah, I don't know. And he's like uh, he's the generation, I mean, he's one of our you know, I look up to him as one of the he, he's one of the gods in the world of uh, conservation biology because of the the stuff that they were doing back then. Huh. so so anyway, I'm find that feller. That bird that was captured, the last one, a c nine. Stands for adult condor nine because we're into (laughs) labeling shit, right? Mm -hmm. I like all those names. Yeah. So AC nine was this ninth condor given a number. And now every condor produced since then, and we're up into the 11 and 1200s now, both for birds produced in the wild and in captivity. Every bird has a number. So AC nine was captured, added to the captive flock. Luckily- the people running the captive propagation programs, the ones who really started it at Los Angeles Zoo in the San Diego Wild Animal Park or Zoo Global or what they were called. It's still the same outfit. They just changed their names. Well, um, that all started and they had that captive flock. AC-9 was put in and paired up with a female, which, again, is not natural. And you have to understand, too, about the reproductive biology. Condors take eight years before they're able to reproduce in the wild. They're wow. capable of it at five and six, respectively, for males and females, but they're usually not successful until eight years of age. So they have a very slow rate of reproduction, which also lends to why weren't they able to respond naturally in the wild to increase causes of mortality because they don't produce quickly enough. And they're a long-lived species, so it's the difference between a K and R-selected species. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. go off on all kinds of tangents. So, I mean, like if a muskrat's alive a few months, it's throwing babies off. Oh yeah, but these things got to tough it out for yeah, close to a decade. Yeah, so to replace themselves, and they only lay well, not they. It's only the female. I don't know if you knew that, <laughs> mm-hmm. but <laughs> I read that. I read that somewhere. I read that. So- I always say they, and my my daughters pointed out, it's like dad. The male doesn't lay egg. I'm like, I know that. I'm like, yeah, but you say they, the pair. Well, okay. They have an egg that the female lays, and then they incubate it together. It takes uh, like 57 days. And then the thing hatches. And then six months later, it finally is ready to leave the nest. And sits par- in the nest for six months? Six months. Wow. Yeah. And then after it fledges, the parents take care of it for an additional year. So now you really have the currency of exchange for, you know, the the game of replacing yourself for condors. That's very limiting. But in captivity, they could get the birds to breed annually. And not only that, but they could prey upon another thing we learned about a lot of different birds. They multiple clutch. If they lose their first egg to predation in the wild, the female is able to recycle and lay another fertile egg. Sometimes that can happen two or three times if their nest is predated. But of course, all these things in nature, they would have had to have laid it early enough. Anyway, I know I'm geeking out on that part of it. But we take it. Yeah, advantage. for a guy that
0: didn't want to talk about condors. You got you got it all. Oh, I love down. talking about
6: condors. Oh, okay. But you talked but you started it with lead and then condors, which I'll tell you why that's that's a bad idea. No. no. Right. Well, you were getting down to six of you watching six birds. Yeah, six of us watching six birds. We learned a lot. So by multiple um, you know, um, Double clutching, which some of us probably old enough to, we think that has a different. Oh, I know about double (laughs) clutching. Yeah, right. Well, double clutching in birds is getting two in the the same same year, same season. So you put the other egg in the incubator. You raise it up. Well, you don't want it to imprint on people. So they used a puppet to make sure that it was fed and nurtured until it was then put into a foster care. And then you take those young and you release them to the wild. Then we release them to the wild. We put transmitters on them. We watch them. Now I'm back to the six people watching six birds. And you're like, now we'll find out what happens to these sons of bitches. Exactly. And as we did, we found out it took them several years years to occupy in behavior and in space what we now think is natural behavior because it's it's not very you know the we're seeing like a 70 80 mile home range these birds are moving seasonally around following the food so during hunting season they eat the hell out of gut piles mm-hmm. it's a great food source during calving season they're eating the the drop calves the ones that don't survive they're eating the the remains left behind all of these things are we're learning because birds like AC9 last one captured put into captivity uh, produce so many young artificially enhanced because we love to play with things as we learn about it so we've been able to exponentially grow the population in a short period of time to maximize the return on investment of the cost of this to pump these birds out and then monitor them well here's a neat thing about the a testament to the condor's resiliency AC9 finally was so well represented and we have a team of geneticists that monitor this to make sure that for every release site, they have a, an equal representation of genetic diversity. So that if we lose one population to some catastrophe, we still have that genetic stock somewhere, mm-hmm. either in captivity in Arizona and Utah or in California and Baja. Those are the, the three main groups. So in your dozen egg carton, your, yeah.
4: uh. There's a lot of parents represented in that dozen egg carton.
6: Well, as many as you could have because there were only, you know, the all-time low was 22 individuals in 1982. So from those 22 came the breeding stock for the entire population today, which begs the question of, is there enough genetic diversity for them to be viable in the first place? Luckily, in avian species, that's not as much of an issue as it is with primates. So the Mauritius kestrel is probably the best example. That was down to four birds, in, in the island of Mauritius. And now that bird's been brought back to over 400 pairs. Hmm. Or it's either 400 birds or 400 pairs. That's a hell of a them. bottleneck. Yeah. But as you start studying now with our capacities in science to study, to look back using genetics, to look back and see what that bottleneck was and how many family groups there are. Well, the Andean condor, the closest living relative to the California condor, it too went through a bottleneck that has like three or four family groups is all they have. Same Mm -hmm. thing with California condor. Anyway, my point about AC9 is he was so well represented, they decided, why don't we re-release him? He came from the wild. Let's put him back out there. Damned if he didn't get back, back released and start breeding in the wild again and, and took a new mate and continued to produce young.
4: He was probably pretty good at the
6: reproducing part at this well, point. Well, because so. he had been, yeah, he'd been doing it on an annual <laughs> basis. not Yeah, ever, worked, he, he had yet. to work for it <laughs> yeah, out it there. <laughs> <gigolo>. <laughs> right. My, my point is people think that the condor is so fragile. And I think people have that misconception that all endangered species are so fragile and that's why they're endangered. Mm. That's not the case. Species get endangered and we get uppity as people when change is too rapid because too rapid a change causes us to get tense about it, which, and and too rapid a change for wildlife interrupts their ability to respond to it, like if there's a new cause of mortality. And so I'm I'm prefacing all this stuff because it's gonna matter when we talk about lead. But what I know about lead is mostly from my work with condors.
0: Slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's I'm in the navel and I hear pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also and the ability to share them. Okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys onx hunt has a special offer for you too use code meat eater to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com/hunt This turkey season. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sights are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sights. Try XS sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at xssites.com and use code meater at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's xsites.com code meat Xs sites, the fastest
6: sites in any light. So we go on and we're studying these birds. They start uh, first lead, lead poisoning case comes in and this gets back to finally answering your question. And I do hear you and I'm not ignoring you. How do you know about lead? How do you know how many die, birds die of lead? We had a bird drop out of a tree at the south rim of the Grand Canyon in the summer of 2000. They went and recovered the bird, took it in. They did an necropsy, mm-hmm. an autopsy for wildlife. Did a necropsy come to find out the bird had lead pellets in its digestive system, meaning it had consumed something with digestive, in its digestive system. It consumed that meat that had pellets, which is odd because it's summertime and it's a Grand Canyon. So what the hell's going on there? Mm-hmm. Well, I got my ideas and I almost got fired for it at Game and Fish, but that's another story. Um, now we know that I looked at the x-ray and I was like, that's number six and sevens. I know those are sevens because I've reloaded a hell of a lot of them, and that's a six. And I see some of those in duck hunting. That's sixes and sevens. What in the world's going on there? One bird had thirty-three pellets in its stomach. Turns out, after that bird, we got the diagnosis back that pellets, not fragments, lead pellets. Okay. No, we're going to get the fragments. That's a whole nother venue, and it's way more conclusive than the where in the hell these pellets come from. So we, um, after that bird gets diagnosed, we see a couple of other birds looking th- lethargic, which is similar to any other vertebrate species and how they respond with, in lead poisoning, we're starting to see it like, man, something's wrong with this bird. It's lethargic. It's not going anywhere. It's not feeding with the rest of the birds. You go in and, and we're like, well, let's trap the population. We found 13 birds after trapping the, the population in 2000. I can't remember what the total was, but we had 13 birds that had uh, pellets in their gut. And some of them were sick, and we had to chelate them. So luckily, you can chelate. It's the same process we use. What does that use. mean? Yeah, chelating is the is the basically it's a you inject a solution. In humans, they do it through IV, mm-hmm. and the root word keel is claw, and it, and it molecularly binds to the lead, and then can be passed through the the system. Huh. Okay, So in condors, we just give them two injections a day in the uh, intermuscular injections in the pec, and then it helps to to reduce mm-hmm. the lead. It depurates more quickly because if it doesn't get taken out of the system, like other vertebrate systems, lead precipitates out of the bloodstream into the organs, into the bone and brain, where there's an increasing difficulty of getting rid of it. Because the half-life of lead in blood is like 14 days. Half-life of lead in the brain might be 40 years. So -hmm. it can start doing real damage with accumulations over a lifetime.
3: Can we define depurate?
6: Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I was... I can't believe I used words that I have to No, define. it's cool.
3: No, yeah. people get to learn stuff.
6: <laughs> depuration You're kicking is... ass in Scrabble, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> there you go. Um, depuration is, is the ability or the way in which a, 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 an element, in this case, mm-hmm. um, it, it precipitates out of the system. That's so cool. there are different ways. Mm-hmm. Some of it is through waste. Some mm-hmm. of it is through being locked up into other compartments. Okay, great. So – Sorry, snort. <laughs> I thought that was she you was for just a minute, Steve. Something. <laughs> so, um, so, so we learned that lead poisoning, in fact, is is something that reared its ugly head in our reintroduction program in Arizona. Now, this wasn't unknown. There were studies in the '80s where they found a few birds, and this gets back to another thing I was talking about earlier. They found a few birds near waterways, and they had such huge crops that it looked like they were they had gorged themselves. But one of the effects that lead poisoning has on on a condor is like other vertebrate species, there are neural, neural impacts. There are neural pathways that are blocked and you get paralysis. And -hmm. this happens with humans and lead poisoning as well. Um, So the condor's digestive system is paralyzed. Therefore, the sphincter that controls the food from the crop that goes down through the proventriculus and the ventriculus and into the gut, it can't function anymore. So they're starving, essentially. And they can't, they they they're still eating more and more and more. And so they're filling up this huge crop. And because they're in a weakened state, because they're not processing food, they can't fly. And because they can't fly and they're not processing food, they usually don't need metabolic water because they can. I mean, they don't need water because they can get water through the metabolic processes of of processing their food. Mm-hmm. So if they're not getting the benefit of their food. They're eating themselves into this engorged state, and they're not getting the moisture they need to go to water. So these birds were found. I learned this when I was doing my dissertation research. Yep. And so we found that these birds would be there with this huge crop, and they couldn't fly. It wasn't because they'd overeaten. It's because they were dying of lead poisoning. Yeah, And they'd be collected near water. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and that's common. So over right, now, so you like, here's where this wives' tale came from. Exactly. Of like, mm-hmm. exactly. Thank you. That was the point I wanted to come all the way back to. So as I started researching this, and because you know when birds go go silent on telemetry or GPS, when their gym, GPS is moving around as we expect them to, and bam, they stop and they're there for two weeks, something's wrong. You go there, and and we started putting this together. Is like, is there a creek? Go to that creek, hike up that creek. We're going to find that bird. So you get your VHF telemetry. You'd either fly it first to kind of narrow it down, and then we'd go in by by you know ATV and then hike in the rest, and then we would we would find that bird. And sure enough, it's got a full crop, and it smells because the crop is soured, yep. which is not normal. For I mean, it, it's when you smell like a like a peregrine that's just eating that's just eating a meal. It doesn't smell what people think it smells like. Ooh, it's dead meat or it's red meat. It has a sweet smell, just like a good piece of elk does, you know. And condors, when they're scavenging, they're scavenging on carcasses when they're new because they find them by eyesight, not by their smell. And so their big bill allows them to tear into carcasses that other scavenging species like turkey vultures can't do. So condors are eating fresher carrion, if there is such a thing. So they usually don't stink. You can smell when they're sick and they have a soured crop. And you can see it because it looks like a big balloon. Um, so we're so we're learning all this stuff, and then I start reading these old papers from the 80s where they said, "Well, we know lead poisoning could be a contributing factor." Well, as it turns out, lead poisoning is the number one factor. And so for us, that's how we came to our understanding of, of lead poisoning and how it could have really contributed to the steep decline and near extinction. And so rather than Resting on that, we went to our partners at Arizona Game and Fish and Utah Division of Wildlife and said, hey folks, we've been monitoring these birds now since 1996 and beginning in 2002 when the condors found the Kaibab Plateau and they started feeding on gut piles in, like, this was the seasonal thing you did. It's like State Fair in Bakersfield, right? Everybody goes there. Well, hunting season on the Kaibab, all the condors, you can see all their location data if they're wearing GPSs, or we're tracking them with VHF, they all go to the Kaibab. And you, we get a signal, and a stationary signal means they're either perched or they're perched because they're, they're feeding. Well, you have to wait a while because they stop and rest and then fly quite a bit. But if they're there for a couple hours and there's five or six birds, you go there and you rush up and there you are at a camp, at a hunter's camp. And there's a bloody, greasy spot in the pine needles over there. And there's a bunch of condors with big, fat crops. And the hunters are long gone and there's the bones, there's the hide, and the condors are fat and happy. You're like, great, it's a great food source. Until we started seeing seasonally high levels of lead peaking coinciding with the, the hunting season. So we took and sampled the birds' blood every time we caught them so that we could have samples of blood year-round. And sure enough, we saw a spike that coincided with October, November, which was when the two deer hunts are in the kaibab. But you're not seeing deaths at this point? Oh, no. No. Deaths were creeping along. And then after like two or three years of consistent use of the kaibab, you could count on it. We were going to lose six to 10 condors a year to lead poisoning. And that's when, Steve, we finally found the pictures in the radiographs. Uh, we, we got an x-ray machine. And if a bird was sick and it had a high blood lead level, we would x-ray it. And sure as hell, we'd find fragments. And then we started asking the question of, okay, but wait a second, is this because of wounding loss? We, di- we didn't yet understand the relationship between gut piles. So, being lifelong hunters and being, you know, the Peregrine Fund is founded by hunters, falconers who don't do DD. Mm-hmm. Oh.
5: and <laughs> we, we so allegedly. They
6: <laughs> so, they say. So, we said, well, hell, let's do a study. Because wounding loss we know is only about 10, 11% in deer hunting. We looked at studies all over the place and, like, we're not talking about 10 or 11% of the deer harvested being the source of lead poisoning that accounts for 80% of the condor flock having high lead levels. We're talking about something more ubiquitous on the landscape. We've got to figure out how much lead there can be. So we did our first study where we went and shot 30 deer up in Wyoming at one of our, our board members uh, places. And and sure enough, this was another point in my personal wildlife career is like, are you kidding me? We're all got five doe fawn permits and we're gonna go do this study and we're gonna shoot all these deer. We're gonna X-ray them whole. We're gonna shoot them with everything from 243 to 300 Win Mag, X-ray them whole. Then we're gonna gut them into a supplement tub, if any of you know what that is. You know, they find them out in the field all the time. We throw it in the supplement tub, then we're going to x-ray the supplement tub. Is that thing that you briefly...
4: Noah's an animal, and you throw your binoculars on it. And yes, you're like, What yes. the hell is a big bucket doing out there? <laughs> Especially when you're <laughs> hog hunting in California.
6: <laughs> yeah. So, so we started X-raying um, these carcasses of deer whole at a vet uh, with a veterinarian up there, and we put an arrow shaft through the wound channel so we could hold it perfectly straight up and down, so that the wound channel was in a columnar uh, fashion, so that when we had the X-ray, we could also see if fragmentation occurred, how far those fragments um, got away from the, the bullets path. So we were started being blown away with just that alone. And we're like, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of lead. But still most, we take the deer out of the, we gut it in Arizona. We gut it and we take it out of the field. And so we're like, well, let's do the gut piles. This blew our minds and we're lifelong hunters. We x-rayed those fragments and, and I'll give you I I won't say the names of the manufacturers cause I don't want to pick on anybody, but anyway, a soft point lead, core bullet that uh, everybody has probably used in their life and most common on the shelf. It's said to retain 64 to 68% of its mass. Damn sure does. It's perfect. The mushroom looks beautiful. When you x-ray that gut pile and and people say, not probably your listeners, they say, well, I don't shoot them in the guts. Well, you know what I mean. Everything Fore and aft of the diaphragm is what we call the gut What pile. you're leaving on the ground. What yeah. you're leaving on the ground or the grullic if you're in, you know, Ireland or whatever. No, that's, that's diaphragm back. Grullic is? Yeah. This diaphragm back? Mm. All right. Well, see, there you go. There's a trivia question. Yeah, there you go. Get that in there. I hope he does ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, the, when we x-rayed the gut piles, that's what blew our minds. A single shot from, say, a 130 grain, 270 soft, soft uh, lead core tip bullet could produce as many as 400 fragments from a single shot. Holy cow. It looks like a snowstorm. And so I started investigating and looking into the snowstorm. You know, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but I said, well, there's got to be fragmentation studies, you know, elsewhere, especially during wartime, because unfortunately it's not like you see on the John Wayne flicks, you know, take a shot of whiskey, bite this dick, I'll get that bullet out. Well, you might get the core of the slug out, but you're not getting the lead out. And there's what was defined in wartime as the snowstorm effect, which was the fragmentation that occurs. And it's basically the stripping off of the front end of that bullet as it comes in hot with its highest velocity. And as it begins to lose velocity because it's losing mass, little pieces are being stripped off and it looks like this little galaxy. Mm -hmm. And that's what these x-rays look like.
0: Uh, Let me hit you with some whataboutisms. You bet. What was going on, like when the hide hunters and the commercial hunters? Yeah, were we shedding like shitloads of condors?
6: I don't know. If you look at the condors' estimated decline and you look at our increase in those activities, it, hmm. it looks like an inverse relationship.
0: Why an inverse relationship? Well, oh, one, got it.
6: Yeah. Maybe I said that wrong. I don't No, the hunting right. activity
0: yeah. is
4: going up, and then the
6: harvest. Inverse so, of that so that would was be so. The...
0: So someone could have. If you had the right toolkit, you could have in 1870 gone out and found lead contamination in condors, and
6: might have charted a declining. Uh, if I if I was a betting man, if I had the money to bet, I'd be betting on that. Okay, bet. because look, and that's the beauty of this study. We weren't looking for lead to be the problem. We were looking and open to the idea of what what are the problems that contribute to, maybe it is the g- lack of genetic variability, stuff like that. We were thinking that. Yeah. And there were people who said that, oh, these birds hatched in captivity, they're not going to know how to breed. And I was like, again, would nature mm-hmm. produce something like that in just a few yeah. generations? And get this, some of the birds we released when they became of breeding age at five and six years of age, they chose caves in the grand canyon that later through investigation of those caves were used by their ancestors in the pleistocene hmm. there were hmm. faunal remains that were carried there likely by condors cuz you're not going to get a harrison's mountain goat uh, uh, tooth you know in in one of those caves on the the sheer red wall going right. walk walking to think into about. there yeah it was kind con- and they found condor remains huh. and those condors that were hatched in captivity who by some people's assertions, you know, they're not going to know what to do. Well, yeah, they did. And they did it just like, you know, they're great, 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 whatever, uh, did. So we became, we became more and more confident that what we're seeing is more indicative of, of what a, a wild condor is doing. Like people said, well, there's not enough food out there. Again, I think about that. And, and a lot of what I think about is the conversations you guys have had on this podcast. Wait a second. We're at the peak of productivity on the landscape right now with respect to carrion the potential for carrion. Wildlife populations of deer and elk and turkeys and wh- whatever else you want to talk about, the 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 age of conservation has produced an abundance of biomass of potential carrion. And then you add from the years of the Spaniards on through to today, the introduction of domestic stock and, and the stocking rates we use on the landscape, I would posit that there might be more potential carrion today than there might have been right after the Last uh, the mm. end of last ice age, when you factor in livestock, it's interesting. To oh, think absolutely. Oh, sure. Now there's Cause also because in a lot of areas you just you're, you're
0: constantly making sure that you're hitting max capacity.
6: Yeah, and right? and people have made the argument, and I think it's worthy. The uh, most you know, with the the advent of veterinary care, the loss rates are are much less too. Got so it. one could argue, you know, I, I'm just saying that from what we've seen and observing the condors. We put food out there when we release birds because our management tool is the release site. If we can't keep them coming back to the release site, we can't go trap them. They're damn hard to trap once they're out in the field. Um, we we thought, well, we don't want them to become dependent on the food that we put out. So like five, six months after, you know, this is in the early years, we'd put the food out there. We'd move it every night, make them work for it, make them have to do what they're going to have to do in the landscape to survive. And then later we found that it doesn't matter what you do and how much food's there. Come the flying season, as soon as March and April hit in northern Arizona and southern Utah and the winds pick up, hey, fuel's cheap. Condors are gliding birds. They have nine and a half foot wingspan. They're going to use it and they're going to go. And they're going to feed elsewhere. So they're not dependent on the food. So we're beginning to answer these original questions. Was it their reproductive biology? Was it the amount of food on the landscape? And then, you know, people saying that they're – They are so, um, uh, they're so vulnerable to, to people. Does that make sense? For as long as humans have hunted in North America, condors have been here and condors follow scavengers. I mean, follow predators. So I would argue that, wait a second, condors aren't looking at us as a predator. And with the birds we see produced today, they're not afraid of humans, which is another major problem when it comes to people that have shot condors, which still happens today, unfortunately. But they're not fearful of humans because we're a predator. And they probably followed predators. Can you imagine in one of those old buffalo jumps? They don't
0: look at us as a predator of them. Of them. But they look at us as a predator that produces carrion. We're
6: a food source. Yeah. So can you imagine one of those buffalo jumps if there were condors that extended out into the plains? You know, which is entirely possible. And how that would have supported a population of condors long after, you know, the natives left. there's, there's so many tangents here obviously.
0: well yeah and it, well this this is all great but in in the interest of time let's let's jump to something you bet uh out of that research and and I'm sure that there was plenty of fighting and suing okay but out of that research we get what I brought up initially right hunters and their ammunition yep. and we came to know about the condor recovery area and folks were introduced to the idea of the, fir- the first widespread ammo restriction since Ooh. the waterfowl. The first widespread ammo restriction since the waterfowl era. All right. So since you, 1986.
6: All right. You're jumping straight. I'm, I'm going to have to back you up, though, because you're jumping straight to the ban in California, I assume.
0: Yeah. Wasn't that I mean, like, well, it's, it spread to other places, right? It could, like portions of Arizona had, were in the condor recovery area. No.
6: Yeah. The, the recovery, <laughs> the addressing the lead issue as it was, um, uh, defined by condors addressing that began in Arizona and Utah long before the ban in California. It did? Yeah. And our approach was entirely differently. Okay, well, that's what it's trying to yeah, different.
0: I, I don't know the history. I uh, just want I'm, I'm, I'm to bump along, and like I, I said, know. in the interest of time.
6: You bet. So let me give you the fast track. So from early 2000s, 2004, four five, we did the deer study, um, put out a few more studies showing the, the coincidence of increased lead exposure and lead-caused mortality in the hunting season. And then we went to Arizona Game and Fish. We built a program to share this information with hunters and ask hunters if they would consider using non-lead. Arizona Game and Fish took it a step further and said, hey, if you get drawn for a Kaibab tag, which is a once-a-decade thing if you're lucky, we're going to also give you two free boxes of non-lead ammunition. We mm-hmm. need your help to okay. address this problem for condors. Within three years, the Arizona Game and Fish reached 80% voluntary participation. Really? That's cool. Within three years. See, and the reason I back you up is because nobody knows this part of the condor and lead story. All they know is what happened in California. And I'm going to get to that for the sake of time. But for the last 12 years. I I, I didn't know. I never,
0: I didn't know about the ammo. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a voluntary component to it. Right. Not a voluntary component. It was comprised of voluntary activities.
6: And and to be further, um, uh, I don't even know what to say, to to be a, a better bunch of conservation scientists and wildlife managers who are all hunters, we said, and. If you just can't get the stuff to shoot in your gun or we don't have the right caliber, you can still help prevent that potential exposure and that potential poisoning by hauling your gut pile out of the field. And when we first proposed that, some people were like, who the hell's going to haul a gut pile out of the field? I was like, well, if you make that Cabela's gift certificate, they might win big enough. I can tell you a lot of folks that would. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked That's so great. Even with the ammunition shortages of late, which I know is something you wanted to talk about, and the price and avail- so price and availability, even with that being an imposition last year, the hunters in Arizona continued to participate, and they just transitioned. If they couldn't get the ammo, they still participated and helped wildlife because they were asked to do so, and we incentivized it to to say thank you. And even though there was fewer rounds of non-lit ammo available for use last year, we saw the same 87% annual participation. 87. It's 87% annual over that 12-year time period. So nobody talks about that. And so when, when, Californ- when it all started in California, okay. it started because... Litigious-based groups who, quote unquote, do conservation, started with California because California was easy pickings because of the way the politics are there. And so when those groups started threatening litigation and saying, you have to do a ban or else, I ended up over there talking to the commission on two separate occasions on behalf of the Condor program and the research that had really put a lot of this on the map. And I was there at the commission meeting saying, no, no, no. We're saying this information is is new and it's real and it's worthy of consideration, but we're saying the assumption that a ban is the only solution, we're not quite convinced. And we have a perfect case, case in point here in Arizona and later into Utah that shows that you can work with hunters and ask for their help and share with them the information. And you can seek maybe higher rates of participation than you may even get with compliance with the law, especially if it comes from the angle of approach that it's coming. Mm -hmm. So the the crap deal for the way that went down in California and the crap deal for why I'm hesitant to talk about lead and condors, unless we do it the right way, which sharing our story, I think, is a better way, is that it turned into a political quagmire, where if you were talking about non-lead today, you're talking about, oh, you're a condor lover. Mm. And I even had a mutual friend, I won't say his name here, but a mutual friend of ours, he said, yeah, but you're a raptor nut. I said, no, I'm not. I'm a hunter conservation nut. The condor or another species is symbolic of what we as a society are capable. Is the of. guy we're talking about real smart? He's damn smart. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know you're talking yeah. About. and very uh, energetic. <laughs> and you, yeah, yeah. Anybody, and he'll know that I'm talking about him because yeah, no, when I'm... he talks about this issue, he knows I'm going to call him right after. I right after the the the. the ooh, I almost gave too much away. <laughs> Right after some of their media um, uh, uh, outputs uh, go, go live. Got it. I gave way too much. Anyway. Um, Beep. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So so for me, and I told him this, I said, what I love about this is the fact that we can combine hunting and conservation and science all together and own it. We can walk away on this issue of lead poisoning and how it affects the condor or the eagle, because there's those recent studies that you reported on, Cal. Um, you know, with with uh, limitations to the eagle populations and going down those paths of the arguments. Well, eagles are, doing, eagles are doing great, so how can lead be a problem? Well, it's like yeah, humans are too, so COVID doesn't matter, right? I, it's just the logic we use today. We really have to shape this conversation. And if we as hunters who who believe we are leading the way in conservation, if we're not out there in the front talking about it, then it will go by the wayside of those groups who have the loudest voice, those groups who spend their money on campaigns and litigation um, and telling everybody they're saving the condor by passing this law. But the reality of it is, and what we were guarding against and warning against when they were petitioning and and cowfish and wildlife was put in a tight spot because they're going to be sued if they don't do something. And, and I was very proud to be a biologist, a scientist who was there saying, hey, I did some of that work. I'm, my name is on those papers. And I'm telling you, I'm not sure a ban will solve the problem. It'll change the law, which sounds good. But if people think that it's all, um, you know, mocked up and, and it's about an attack on our rights as mm-hmm. hunters, I won't say we predicted it. It was obvious. You didn't, nobody had to predict it. And when that happened that way- What the
0: perception would be.
6: Oh, absolutely. And now, guess what? Lead poisoning is still occurring where lead is banned. And and to those people who believe that the ban was the only solution, I said to them, so if you are successful in your ban, you have your parade in the streets, you say you solved the problem. You know the crappy thing for us who are out there monitoring and watching and taking care of these condors? They're still going to be lead poisoned. And they're still going to be lead poisoned because people are going to say, yeah, I realize it's a law, but I think it's bullshit. So I'm not going to worry about it. And it's unenforceable. Can you tell the difference between a polymer tip solid copper bullet versus a, a polymer tip lead core copper jacket?
0: I mean in the field?
6: Yeah, you can't tell. So there are all these issues that we were pointing out and saying, guys, don't get the cart before the horse here. Do what we're doing. And not because we were right, but because we were seeing success. Hunters are responding in kind. We're and, the only people with the study and the study has this type of results. Right. So. Right. And then we would say, and and then finally I would just say, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm going on too long about this too, but, um, I said, if, if hunters are the only ones that can solve
8: this problem. So do you want to alienate them? That's an interesting point. Cause that's part of the waterfowl ban was that North Dakota game and fish kind of hung their hat on that. They did like, uh, they put on shooting clinics for hunters and they're like we're going to teach you how to shoot with steel. We're going to teach you that steel isn't some awful thing. And, you know, they spent the time and money to, to work with hunters, put on two day, like shooting clinics, show them lead poisoning, all this. And the hunters leave it and they're, they're positive about it.
6: So I'm so glad you brought that up because that is the the foundation that I've laid for you and what we experienced in Arizona and Utah is the philosophy and foundation that gave rise to the North American Non-Led Partnership. And I hope someday yeah. we can come back with my co-founder, Leland Brown, and talk about that partnership because that's exactly what we're doing. So state agencies are, are rightfully so. They're concerned about the per- public perception about it, how big a deal is this lead thing? Do we need to do anything? And we're saying, hey, we can help you with that. We've already done it. And we did mm-hmm. it in the range of the condor, where it's even more contentious. But if you want to have this conversation about the potential for lead exposure and how to prevent the potential for lead exposure as a as a, an opportunity for a, an ethically minded uh, uh, conservation-minded hunter, we we can give you confidence that this will resonate well with them. Let me let me uh, let me lay one on you.
0: Um. I'll start out by saying you can comment on this comment, but I'll start out by saying this goes beyond the problem with lead poisoning. Or I don't even want to use value. I don't want to use value laden terminology. Raptors besides condors can and do die from lead ingestion. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Um. People who are uneasy or outright opposed to bans, as we discussed in California, where, where it moves it beyond hunter choice, okay? Yeah. And you just raise your hand. So <laughs> so people who oppose lead bands, Yeah, and I don't oppose it, but go ahead. Some people do. Yeah. Okay. I'm very, une- like, I'm not, I'm highly, highly uneasy with the idea of a lead band. Me too. When... You could get with compliance and technology gradually land in a similar place. So, to the point where now, if you had someone like, if you come to me and said, I could shoot uh, lead or bismuth, right? Be like, I'll shoot bismuth. It's, well, it's really expensive, but it performs well. So, you have a technology function. Outside of any conversation, like outside of any conversation about lead, I know a lot of guys that shoot copper bullets.
6: Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah,
0: outside of it, it like they could be not even aware of the debate, absolutely. But they're switching for issues of performance and other stuff. Okay, yep. There's a cost factor, but I'm straying from what my point is going to be. Someone who's going to come and say, like, uh, I am going to resist any kind of mandate that tells shooters what they have to use. And someone says, "Well, what about the fact that that Raptors die from lead?" They would say. Uh, raptors die from collisions with glass. Raptors die from wind turbines. Raptors get hit by vehicles and die. Raptors die all manner of ways. They die from colliding with fences. Um, why is there not a conversation about, we can't have fences, we can't have glass windshields, we can't have glass sky rises. Why do you seem to not care about all these significant Causes of death, but you care about this one, and they'll say this we're not talking about population level impact. Yep. They might say there's like this is an argument, and they're saying, Sure, some die, they all die eventually, many die from many causes, but short of there being population level impact, it doesn't matter. Beautiful, I'm glad you brought this up. Okay, so that's that's
6: a way of that's a yep. not a fringe. Oh well, no! Not a fringe viewpoint, no. And what I would what I would enter into that because there's there's several things you need to unpack there. Um, the the first of which is yes, lead is not in many cases a population limiting effect for those other raptors. Mm-hmm. It's only proven to be so right now. Well, it can affect populations. That's that latest paper in Science pretty much nailed that. Um, and the the condor is obviously affected a population limit limiting level population limiting level, but they're all affecting population. But you can't say it's not either. Okay. But the argument, it shouldn't be about that. There are programs to educate and mitigate for all those other causes of mortality. Look at the stuff we're seeing about feral cats right now. Not that they're out killing eagles, but my point is um, there are programs out there. Just to, hasn't been proven yet. You're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but there are programs that do address it. The sticking point is are there programs out there? You know, a lot of the feral cat problem is addressed
0: addressed by lead.
6: (laughs) I won't get into the details of a law enforcement interview I had one time about the way I learned to shoot and whether it did or did not have anything to do with feral cats, but um, I won't get into that. Um, the the point is 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 we're not talking about we, we at the non led partnership or the peregrine fund or any of our partners, and okay. now we have over forty partners, including one of your all close outfits, First Light, is one of our partners. We're not out there saying that a band's a solution. Mm. We're out there saying education, outreach, educating yourself, being able to make an informed decision. We are confident based on our experience in Arizona, Utah, now Oregon, beginning in Washington, four new new part or two new partners to the two original of state agencies, we're confident that if you provide that information and you in, you shape a path forward through, yes, incentives work great, and it's, it's fun to maybe win something, um, that you can change people's perceptions, their awareness, and that can lead to changes in behavior without telling them what to do. And me as a hunter, and that's why I'm so passionate about this, I want us to have our cake and eat it too. I want us to say, when we say that hunters are the original conservationists, yeah, are they continuing to be? I hope what we're doing represents that. Mm -hmm. Because I want to be a hunter leading the way in conservation and far greater than any single species that we've prevented extinction from or, or brought back to take them off of the endangered species list. All of those are testaments of what we're capable of. The way in which we go about it is the process that will see us through to the challenges in the future. It's well beyond a single species and it's beyond a single issue like lead poisoning. There are other issues that are way bigger on the, on the scale of things for wildlife management agencies to be dealing with. I I understand that. That's why I think we, as a nonprofit, for example, at the Peregrine Fund, that's why we, we put our two cents in. We show our, our, we lead by example by saying, we'll help you with that. That's why we co-founded the non-lead partnership.
0: You know what I forgot to do when I was laying out my thing? I forgot to include this one. Which winds up in there, and you can continue unpacking the whole thing. It'll be like, uh, the bald eagle. Yeah. Okay. What was the What was the thing we did to save the bald eagle? What was the the thing called? Silent Spring and all that.
6: Oh well, you're, are you talking about DDT or? Yeah. You,
0: no, no. What was it? What was the that made their eggs their eggshells thin? DDT
6: and DDE, which is the residue that's found. Okay. yeah eggshell thinning. Okay. Well, so, that, I mean, the peregrine falcon is probably a better example of that, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Peregrine Falcon was, was, was far greater affected. I mean, it was really, oh yeah. Yeah. The Peregrine Falcon, we, we nearly lost because of that. And that obviously is thus the namesake of our organization, the Peregrine Fund, but that's why we were founded those falconers who noticed that populations of, of peregrines were, were plummeting and wondering why and thought, well, we, we've got to be able to breed these birds in captivity and re-populate re, uh, those areas, but we got to find out the problem. And the DDT was identified as the problem. And even though the science was there, kind of like what you were talking about with a hundred years of lead lead information, mm-hmm. even though the science was there, one of the things that put it on the map was Silent Spring. Okay you know and like like Bellrose you know Bellrose was the guy who finally got it through to everyone he
0: was the Rachel Carson of
6: I would argue that he was the guy at the time people finally came around to to really accepting what was going on he was the expert at the time but yeah. it's never one person that finally did yeah. it because you don't introduce something that's controversial controversial that is going to require a great amount of change in human societies. That that is listened to. They hear the case and they say, "Yep, we're going to do it." And then they do it. Now, yeah. No, you hear that. about it, and the first one's called a radical, and then later on, they're they're uh, immortalized and and talk. You know, or like, mm-hmm. or like Teddy Roosevelt. You, end just, up, that's you end exactly up Carving what his thinking. face into the side of a mountain, <laughs> right, right, for <laughs> making <laughs> a lot
0: of wilderness, uh, making a lot of forest and wilderness, and then everyone, every politician since then wants to compare himself to a guy. Yeah. That was ridiculed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In his day.
6: And, and uh, that's exactly, you beat Tree me to hugging
0: it. His son of a son bitch on the plane. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so uh, but, uh, let me finish my bald eagle thing. Right. I haven't even gotten there yet. Uh, sorry. Recently, there was a news story. <laughs> we can go all day, man. Well, there's a news story that got all kinds of press. I mean, in the last month or two, something about th- like a prevalency of lead in eagles. And people are like, holy shit, these eagles all got lead. And someone pointed out, hold oh, on, aren't we talking about the same bird that we quite famously. Removed from the Endangered Species Act protection yep. because it's recovered, and yep. now it's everywhere. And you don't even comment on bald eagles anymore. Is this the bird we're talking about that's
6: getting <laughs> killed by lead? Well, they do in a, they do in Alaska. They comment about that bird.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, at our fish shack, I, I think someone once counted twenty seven right in a, in, a, in a collection of trees. But I'm saying that. So, like on one hand, the the media is running with this bald eagle thing. On the other hand, people are like a minute. I thought that was like one of the great conservation success stories. How
6: bad could the lead be? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my point. It's not about does it affect a single species to the point where they might we might lose them. Mm-hmm. That's not the stake of the game. The game is understanding and having the information to be able to comprehend the the, the system and be able to make wise choices. Yeah. Because What's the, one of the first tenets of, of hunter education? Know your, know your uh, target, and, target beyond. and beyond. Well, there's a new dimension to this. And <laughs> yeah, I won't, I won't, point. I won't <laughs> steal this because this is Leland Brown, my co-founder that works for the Oregon Zoo. For what's beyond the target. Yeah. This is a new dimension. We own that bullet. We're responsible to make sure it hits the target we intend to kill. And if we do our job and we know our equipment, it does its job. What about after we leave and the remains of that bullet are there? All we want to do is make sure people know that there's a potential, potential for that to poison a bird. Now, if it does poison a bird, does that mean that we're going to lose that species that ate it? That's not the point, folks. It's like leaving trash in the forest, right? It, we're not telling people, let's, let's ban. It is It is banned. You can't leave trash in the forest. It doesn't mean that's what people do. Yeah. You it know, doesn't mean something's going to die. If pick you up it. your paper, right? I mean, yeah. it's a good thing to do for ecosystem health. We want people to think about it that way. Not that if we don't do it, we'll lose a species. I think that paradigm of that style of conservation is over. Because one, the science is still science. It's still evolving. And there's still the peer-reviewed process that that tests the science and our assumptions of what we know. That's an ever-ongoing thing. But the thing is, the way we do conservation, because now people don't trust the science. And they don't know who to trust when they're talking about whatever, you know, PhD on this side and on that side of every every issue. Um, we need this is a new paradigm of conservation, and I think we just have to go back and do the hard work in earning relationships and trust, so that you can share it in the way that, in some form or fashion, we've been able to sh- share here today. Um, you got to build that that trust before people are going to change their behavior, because once again, just like those species that don't adapt well to major perturbations in an environment. We don't adapt well to major change either.
0: Yeah. Uh you're not a physi. you're not a human physiologist. No.
6: Okay. And that's I know you're gonna ask about human health. No. Let's do it.
0: I'm not even gonna ask about it. I'm gonna comment on it. All right. Uh no one has been able to tie in a way that that achieves some sort of academic consensus. No one has been able to tie hunting, eating wild game meat, with adverse health effects due to lead. In fact, I remember they did this thing where they went and looked at North Dakota hunters to see how much lead they had. And they're like, "Oh, some of these hunters have elevated lead, but on average, they had less et- they had less lead in their system than urbanites who don't eat wild game, because exposure comes from a variety of ways: lead paint, soil, all the leaded gasoline Water. that was burning for all those years. Right? So I don't want, <laughs> like. I don't even want to get into the and because you're not a human physiologist, you can comment on it. But I, I think it's like. You can comment on it. Not that I need to tell you what to comment on. <laughs> I try. Let me put it this way: Do you contest? Do you contest my statement? If I say there is no proof that hunters are suffering health effects, not not lead in their system, are suffering health effects greater than the American public in general.
6: No, and I, I I would not contest that, but what I would say is, and this is the way I treat this issue, because if you lead with the human health issue and and you try to tell people what's good for them, it's bad news. Yeah, but you're not here to talk about human health. Exactly. I'm trying to get to a
0: different point, but I don't want to just leave. The, okay. I don't want to just drop a hand grenade here and then walk away, right?
6: Yeah, I'll, I'll catch it. Um, so... So yeah. Um, do I, would I contest that? Um, based on my interpretation of the science, uh, I would say I don't contest that. that the, the studies aren't conclusive that if you hunt and you eat the meat that you eat, um, that you are suffering, suffering deleterious effects of lead poisoning. However, I will say this, that the science that goes along with our understanding of lead and its effects on humans, um, the, the median allowed blood or the allowed blood lead level when I was a kid and you were a kid, I might be a little older than you, um, was like 25. I figure it out if you tell me how old you are. 25 micrograms per deciliter. Um, that's, that's pretty, pretty high. The safe level today, um, when you look at that CDC study, the one that followed the one you're talking about, yeah. they said Zero. And so while oh. they, while they, they zero, <laughs> so they're like, how about none? <laughs> how about none? Because really, when you think about it, there's, there's no, there's no species ever studied or organism that uses that, that, that lead is a use of except us, because it's great for animals. So when you look at all the, yeah. So when
0: you look at all the like, stuff <laughs> so, like magnesium, potassium, right. like there's no, there's no, like you didn't get your daily lead.
6: Yeah, <laughs> right. You, <laughs> <didn't>, you <laughs> don't think that <laughs> way. No so, so Steve, the, the way I answered that question and just to, to really, and and again, we have some other mutual friends that have been on the podcast and they have very strong feelings about it. Though You can't say that it is affecting human health. And then I hear the argument, well, you can't say it's not. Because when mm-hmm. you have a lead poisoning, amount, uh, an amount of measurable lead in your system, how do you determine where it came from unless you're doing isotopic analyses? Yep. And again, does it matter? Here's where I go to. But we, but you, okay, but you can't sit here and and like I said, we can't I be can like the,
0: follow- the hell out of this no, chair. We <laughs> can't be doing we can't be doing the follow the science. Listen to the science, follow the science. I'll say okay, let's all agree to follow the science. Okay, if we're going to agree to follow the science, there's not a human health risk. It's supposition. You could argue that. Yeah, you could argue. So that. let's keep, and people do. Okay. Yeah. So if if like if we because I I almost roll my eyes now when someone says they're going to follow the science or they don't want to listen to the science. I'm like. You know why? Because science is weaponized. Hmm. They've burned. Like if I was going to look, not that the scientific community is monolithic. If I was going to give advice to the scientific community as a monolithic unit, I would say, don't let your research be weaponized. Because it's so weaponized that when someone says follow
6: the science, you can reasonably say whose? Exactly. (laughs) I agree. And and what you need to do is use the products of science as a, a way of informing yourself. But it doesn't mean it's the holy grail. I remember asking a researcher, buddy of mine, he's working on something. I said, well, What do you
0: hope happens? He goes, I don't hope anything happens. What are you talking about? What right. do I hope happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, and, and what it's all like, I, I was like, man, I would be rooting for that shit, I, man. <laughs> I would point out too that like
4: following the science, if you do want to do that, that means actually like clicking the links in the article that grabbed your attention, mm. opening up the actual paper, <laughs> and then reading that paper.
0: Yeah. You usually find that the paper is a lot less explosive. Than when it got picked up by absolutely. the news agencies.
4: Sometimes you read it two or three different times to find out how, how. that article that you started out with yeah. actually has anything to do with this paper. So,
6: Yeah, absolutely. And and so the way I usually answer that question is like, man, let me tell you about my experience. I had two youngsters at home when we were doing that deer study and we were shooting all those deer. And because we'd shoot eight or 10 deer a day and we'd process them all, it'd take us all day. We wanted their carcasses, the, the carcasses to be shipped out to the processors to make sure we had 30 different processors. So it wasn't biased by the, all Oh, by methodology. Know, yeah. No. Yeah. So w- that meant we had two days off from shooting more deer. Well, we had haul butt up to Montana with our bird dogs and shotguns and go hunt, hunt upland birds because it was in the right season. Let all of our shit up. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, that's from Arizona, man. Anyway, um, we'd go do that, and my wife said, I called her, I said, man, I got, not only are we are going to have all the deer meat from the study, I mean, five tags worth of Dauphins, and it's all going to be cut and packaged professionally, which, okay, it's either good or bad, but I, I like doing my it's own. Easy. <laughs> it's <laughs> right? easy. Yeah, it's easy. We're going to come home, and I've got Sharptail, I got Pheasant, I got Huns. And we're probably going to kill a few ducks with with falcons too, to to boot. And she goes, "What'd you hunt the upland birds with?" I was like, "What, a shotgun?" <laughs> well, what'd you use? I was like, "Well, I use a 410 on the huns, and the 20 on the sharp tails, and and it was the end of of uh, of uh, sage grouse season, and and I got a sage grouse with my 12." She's like, "No, dummy, what'd you use? What ammunition?" I was like, "I don't know. They were." double A's something good you know she goes lead I was like yeah oh right <laughs> well uh, I have an x-ray let me x-ray the carcasses because she was put putting it in my face that are, are you thinking yeah I was like you know that's a damn good point I wasn't thinking so uh, yeah maybe I'll try steel and I tried steel and I've been using it ever since
0: The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's and I'm in the navel and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also and the ability to share them. Okay. Comes in handy every spring, whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before, or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. On X Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code Meat Eater to receive twenty percent off your membership at OnXMaps.com/hunt. This turkey season. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris, and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sights are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MeatEater at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MeatEater. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. And I got all my proteins lined up in there. It just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of a high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free. And every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Like I said, I'm only saying this to tee something up. Because I'm kind of teeing like what. I can't wait till you get there. Well, it's not as, it's not as explosive as oh. you might think. What I'm trying to tee up is if. Like that What's your. Part? Like. What is your ask of your peers, like your peers being hunters? Mm, what is yeah. your ask? But, but I want you to say that, like considering that, um, if, if, if you can't look them in the s- straight in the eye, okay. You can't look a hunter straight in the eye and say, you are imperiling your family's health. It's not my business. Okay. I'd never do that. Well, and, and you'd have a hard time making the case. Yeah. You would. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell you that, but, and and I'm not going to tell you that you're having population, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to put the bald eagle back on the endangered species list, but we as hunters are killing some number of birds by putting lead out on the, on the landscape in gut piles. It's just, it's like, it's not a debatable point. What you want to do about that. It's your business. Yep. Okay. Are you like, Hey, tough shit. Are you like, well, if I can. If it's six and one half, if it's six and one half dozen the other, maybe I don't want to do that, right? Like, like what is the ask?
6: I think the ask is to, to, one, educate yourself before you make a decision. You want to make an informed decision. And there's a lot of information out there to make a decision. I have confidence that when the information is shared with hunters, they make good decisions for wildlife. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'll, I'll also add a little, another little, little salt and pepper here, a little extra spice that, you know, the rest of the world is watching. And if the hunter, and you gave one of these options or these, uh, alternate uh, responses, like, I don't give a shit. Okay. Careful. Don't say you don't give a shit. Because if you happen to be the hunter who the rest of the world is watching, that is not a hunter, worse yet, if they're an anti-hunter and they can say, well, look, he said they don't care. Because it's not population limiting, they don't care if they kill a few eagles. That's, that's a tough way to, that's a tough place to be. So I guard against that by telling people, well, well, there's a great way to representing the conservation ethical hunters. If you say, yeah, I educated myself and I do take some precautions, um, because I don't want to uh, harm wildlife while I'm deliberately taking other wildlife, you know, that I'm targeting, mm-hmm. um, that I, I think that's the norm. Like, do you, do you feel that hunters would
0: be rewarded in a legal sense, like rewarded by the legislation, if they were demonstrating a year over year reduction in certain activities, or do you feel that in the end they're going to get hit by
6: in the end they're going to get hit by bans, no matter what they do? I hope not. I fear that if we don't mobilize and educate ourselves and come to some consensus about what best practices are mm-hmm. when it comes to, to the potential for lead exposure in wildlife, I think we're more vulnerable than ever to a, a ban. I, you know, our our statement is we don't support legislation or litigation to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. I've had some good buddies of mine who I would assume that would never support a band say, well, it's just time. I was like, whoa, well, um, I don't know that it is. Because I don't have the confidence that hunters understand the problem. If I thought hunters really understood the potential for lead exposure and we as a populace said, we don't give a shit, we don't care, I wouldn't be working so hard in this effort. Got it. But I don't believe it's the case because everywhere we go, even wildlife professionals... I'm not picking on them either. You go and talk about
7: it, and they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, I think – you mind if I jump in here real quick, Steve? No, Don't be hard but, to get one um, edge-wise. Huh? Yeah, you got to pick your moments. Uh, I think something that would help me, Chris, because I, I first off, I'll preface, I am a, uh, I, I use both copper and lead. Yep. Um, I think, you know, the waterfowl story going from lead to steel – has like, man, massive die offs. We need to stop this now. We're going to steal. I think what would help somebody like me with making these decisions, because I have educated myself to a moderate level on this. And I'm not he, know, a, he knows more about
0: guns and ammo than anybody I know. That's awesome. Um thanks. We gotta hang out.
7: Uh, <laughs> and um and I'm not a blatant asshole. Like I I do care about the wildlife, right? So when I hear like, well if you just educate yourself, like it's a very easy decision. Yep. Um for me, I have not come to the same conclusion uh, because part of my decision making has to do with that bullet's performance. I should, can you stop for a minute? Yeah, this is Garrett Long speaking. Oh yeah, sorry, Garrett Long. he's just been hanging out. Yeah, he's yeah, been hanging out here. Um, part of this has to do with that bullet's performance downrange. So, you bet. a lot of folks, and I'm not trying to make parallels to steel and lead, right? Because I know it's like mm-hmm. easy to jump there, but there's yeah, like very, very, very obvious case with with the Waterfall side. Um, I know that at a certain speed, my copper bullet isn't going to do what it's designed to do. I think a lot of people don't understand that. They get their 6.5 Creedmoor. A lot of people don't get that a copper bullet, you get beyond, depending on the length of barrel and everything like that, but you get beyond about 300-ish yards, you're going to have performance, you can have performance-related issues with that bullet. Right.
6: With any bullet, with, depending on its with construction. With
7: any bullet, but it, it's more likely because of how hard copper is. It, there's a higher likelihood that it's not going to expand. So for me, when I'm making my kind of lead copper decision, part of that is mortality rate on the animal I'm hunting and likelihood of recovery. You bet. Right? And so I think something that would help, Folks like me that are in this position, right? That if if we just had copper and lead ammo and it's like they're equally just as good and it was like you choose one or the other, well, I think you're right. The decision is a lot easier, but they're not just like one another. What would help me is what what is the level of risk, right? When you say like, Steve brought it up earlier, like we know there's eagles dying from gut piles, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. at, at some point. Okay, but like- do we know that frequency and that level of risk? Because I know that I might hit a deer on the way home, right? And that's calculated in me driving. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's probably not likely. And I think that would help me come to that decision sure. a little easier.
0: You know, you know a good parallel what you're talking about with the switch. Remember like BPA free water bottles? Mm-hmm. Be like, you can't even look and tell the difference between the water bottles. They cost the same. One's BPA free. You made switch they made switching so easy. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. it's like it still holds water. Right, right. <laughs> still right. costs the same amount of money. Right, I can't tell from looking at it, but right, it just becomes like people don't sit around arguing about it. Right, right.
6: Yeah. So, so I guess I'm maybe I didn't. Um, what you point out is is very worthy, of, you know. And depending on the the, the bullet and what its composition is, copper and whatever, then um, some of them, you know, the monolithics, the solids that don't have all the pre-scoring and all that stuff, yeah, you need 18 1,900 feet per second to get that bullet to open up like it's supposed to. Um, but now there are other companies making bullets that that will fully expand, if not fragment into, you know, eight or 10 pieces that I would never use on game meat that I intended to eat. I mean, those bullets will will do what they're supposed to at way lower. So you're absolutely right. You have to know your tools and you have to know the capabilities. The first time
0: I shot a, a all copper, the first time I shot an all copper bullet was like a decade ago. I remember I shot a stag with it, a red stag with it. He didn't know he'd been hit. Yeah, he eventually fell over, and it looked like someone like shoved a. It looked like yep. he took a field point arrow and ran it through him. Yeah, and that was six hundred yards away. But shit's come a long way since then. And it has. And, Shit and has come I a think, long think way something that then.
7: would be interesting too is because. So, Man, my lead bullets at a certain range, like when I'm out of range, I like I know what they're going to do more than likely, right? Like, and it's going to be very catastrophic. And we're doing a test on this actually in a couple of weeks on different bullet types and how they react to bone and things like that and speed. But Killer. like, I would love to also see the data on a bonded bullet, right? We okay. know it's lead, right? But we know its retention is a lot higher, right? Than that of a normal lead soft core bullet. So it'd just be interesting to, intertwine that to see like what's my level of risk in choosing this and and how does that compare to my perceived um potential of of losing an animal because of yeah
0: you bet i I, like i don't have a massive like i don't have massive ballistics expertise just for that sake but i have like i do a lot of big game hunting and shooting like trophy copper federal trophy copper i've yet to have what i get like a, a handful of big game animals every year, and I've yet to be like S- that son of a yeah, bitch and bull totally. like never. In fact, it'll usually bring the opposite where people like hunting coos deer. Everybody's like, I "Can't believe you got shooting with a three hundred wind mag and blah, blah blah." Right? Yeah. It makes mushrooms perfectly. Makes a perfect hole through them. Things fall over. There's not a bunch of superfluous damage and a giant wound channel. But it mushroomed. Mm-hmm. I just have like. I'm sure you can find extremes, but in terms of like the performance thing, just me as a dude out hunting in pretty normal Western big game
7: situations, I haven't encountered the issue. And I think for a guy like you that um, shoots a big gun, a 300 Win Mag that goes pretty damn fast and you don't reach outside a certain yardage, like you have a a fairly close, like like that makes total sense. That's when I use copper, right? I, I love it. I think it's when you get beyond that into different caliber types that it matters. Yeah. out to the shots where I'm like, let's
4: try to stay closer.
7: <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I'm glad you brought that
6: up because I wouldn't have remembered to bring that up. And it's a valid point. And, and again, it is to me just as simple as know your tools, know the information, and make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. And I think the impact from us just doing that as a hunting populace, Um, it will make an impact. Mm -hmm. It will make a difference, Mm -hmm. which may make it more defensible. Back to your comment, Steve, that we don't need to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. We can, we can operate as hunters, as the conservationists that we claim to be. We can do that with all of these things. Tell people we're out of time. Tell people. I get that all the time.
0: Where, (laughs) if they want to find out more about the organizations you're involved in, or if they want to read more about. You bet. um, Whatever. Yep. Uh, you think they should go read about. You bet. And uh, I know you've done a bunch of work on comparative ballistics and stuff, so just tell people where to find what you guys work on.
6: Yeah, I'll give you two, um, partnership.org, um and the uh, huntingwithnonlead.org. Those are, those are two of the co-founders. Um, Oregon Zoo, because they have a, a program there that our co-founder Leland Brown runs. Um, those are three good resources, and you can get a hold of us, and we'll come do a ballistics demo. We'll bring ballistics gel, we'll bring a bullet trap. We did one of those years ago, and and I'd love to talk more, more with you offline about the bonded bullets because, yes, they do retain their weight, but uh, there's some interesting things about that. So uh, nonleadpartnership.org, the Peregrine Fund, any of our other partners, Arizona Game and Fish is a great resource. They've been at this a long time. Uh, Utah Division of Wildlife. Them and softies down in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, softies. <laughs> Boy, you're going to pay for that one. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd say uh, huntingwithnonlead.org is probably one of the best resources. And I also want to plug another another closer to here um, outfit that started up with a colleague of ours, Brian Bedrosian. And, and they started one up. It's called Sporting Lead Free in Wyoming. And it's another one that not pushing for bands, pushing for sharing information and pushing for movements that show we can take that information and make really good decisions for wildlife. All right, everybody. Chris Parrish, president and CEO
0: of the Peregrine Fund. Thank you very much, man. You sticking around for trivia? Yep. Yeah, sure. I yeah. think you'll do good, sure. but I don't think you'll win. I probably <laughs> won. last
5: week.
3: I'm not <laughs> good. At last guest yeah, yeah.
0: But no,
2: I'm saying that because I think you might win. Really? Because Brody's not here. Oh, okay. Right. Stick around for trivia. No,
3: Brody's, I think, going to be here.
2: <laughs> and don't forget to Stay tuned. To get an exclusive first listen to one of the stories on our new Campfire Stories audiobook, Narrow Escapes and More Close Calls.
0: The Best Shot of My Life by Cameron Kirk Connell. A lot of the stories we're dealing with in this collection originally came to us in just little snippets, like little details of stories. In a couple cases, we would later find out that the details originally provided to us weren't actually part of the story at all. In other cases, we might have just gotten a little snippet of a story that was, in fact, the most tantalizing bit. This story here is an example of the latter. Our next storyteller, Cameron Kirkconnell, is friends with the spearfisher woman, Kimmy Werner, who you heard from earlier. And earlier I mentioned how Kimmy keeps a lot of things to herself. She lets experiences in the ocean oftentimes just stay between her and the water. Cameron is guided by that same principle and was not particularly eager to talk about this. In the end, he decided to tell us his story because he feels as though it might be helpful to other people who could wind up in a similarly dangerous position. He is anything but a glory seeker. However, perhaps to his own embarrassment, I'll point out that his actions and bravery were recognized by the United States Coast Guard. I caught a little bit of the story, and I knew that if the part I heard was right, this story just couldn't be ignored. We had to go track it down, and I'm glad we did. And I think you'll be glad as well.
9: I'm Cameron Kirkconnell. I'm a professional spearfishing guide. And uh, my family is from the Cayman Islands. So we grew up spearfishing and around the water. And I grew up doing nothing but wanting to be on the water. At the time this story takes place, I was working down in Boca Grande as a a tarpon guide, you know, helping people catch tarpon. When uh, whenever I had a chance, uh, when I was off of work, I would go and and spear. And I saw a really good day of weather coming in where it's going to be like flat calm. And there were some other guys at the marina that had a a good boat that we could run way offshore to these really good spots. So I called a buddy of mine, Steve, who was up at university of florida i was like dude come down like it's gonna be like banner conditions i've got everything just show up he was a really good diver and it's it's hard to find other guys that are good at diving so he drove through the night after having a pretty big july 4th and came down and met me and i think he probably had about two or three hours of sleep by the time he got there Um, so he was pretty whipped this day we were diving about 60 miles off the west coast of Florida on a spot that was in about 180 feet of water. And during that time of year, the water is usually nice and blue. Even in 180 feet of water, you can usually see far enough down to see some good fish, and the fish will come up mid-water. So you're not diving all the way to the bottom on a free dive, which is breath diving, but you're actually chumming them up. Chumming, what we do is we will take another fish or a bait fish, cut it up into small pieces and slowly toss a couple pieces out. So the boat was anchored and we would throw like three pieces of chum, wait 30 seconds, three more pieces of chum, wait 30 seconds. And what that does is it sinks down and eventually it's going to go all the way to the bottom. You figure if you're a fish in 180 feet of water and you smell this delicious, you know, chum coming down, this chunks of fish, you're going to eat those little pieces. And then you're going to look up and be like, oh. So it's coming from up there. And then you follow that trail all the way up. So you can be out in 100 or 200 feet of water and bring fish that are usually bottom fish nearly to the surface. So all the way up into range of what we can do free diving by chumming. We had just an epic day. Like the water conditions were awesome. It was really clear, beautiful blue. Um, Both of us shot our biggest amberjacks. And the one that I shot, I remember distinctly, I dove down and shot it at about 70, 80 feet, and I was in 150 feet of water. And the fish ended up weighing, I think, 105 or 107 pounds. So I can remember, like, you know, (laughs) celebrate with Steve on the surface, and then he shot another one, his best one. So it was getting towards the end of the day, and we anchored up on a new spot. And we were chumming for a while and getting in, in the water, So uh, the current was going straight off the back of the boat. So for the first 30 foot of depth, the current was going straight back. And there was only about 30 foot of visibility in there. Uh, Below that, there was a current that was going exactly 90 degrees perpendicular to it. And it was crystal blue water. And there was a group of Kubera snappers, which are a big, powerful snapper that fight really hard and are really difficult to get, and they really wouldn't come up over about 100 feet. So Steve and I talked about it, and we decided that, you know, because of the rigs that we were using, which was spear guns with a 100-foot float line and a buoy, we weren't going to be able to get them with that rig. So a spear gun is basically a piece of wood with a trigger mechanism and rubber bands that propel a metal shaft with a barb on it. And when it's loaded, it's like a rubber band gun. You had a kid, except it slings out a, a metal shaft. So that spear has a hole in it and you tie a line off to that. And then you've got about 15 to 30 feet of slack line that's attached to the gun. And then that is clipped off to a float line, which is a line that goes from the gun all the way to the surface. And you can have all kinds of different... Uh, lengths of float lines and materials, but for what we were doing this day, we had a hundred foot float line. And then on the surface, we have a float, which is a big inflatable buoy that looks like a lifeguard float so that when you shoot a fish, you don't have to fight them while you're down there. You can shoot them, keep the gun in your hands. The line comes away from it and the line is attached to the buoy. So you can relax, get to the surface But the problem we were having is because of the way the currents were and the depths that we were diving, that boo was coming tight each time. And I was like just out of range of shooting that really big snapper and the other fish that were down deep. So we theorized the only way to do this was to use the fishing reel that was in the boat, clip that off to the gun and to the line. So... If that fish came up to 115 or 120 feet, I'd be able to get to it, shoot it, and then be able to let go and just free ascend to the surface without having to fight anything. And the guys in the boat would be attached to it and be able to crank it up. So in order to give me enough slack to go deep enough to shoot one of these fish, we rigged the line from the spear actually to the fishing reel. So we talked it over with the guys in the boat and said, look, I'm going to go down. I'm going to make this dive. Steve's going to stay on the surface and watch me. I'm going to shoot this fish. And when you feel a tug, you guys crank this thing up. And we all decided this was a a pretty good plan. And up until that day and until now, I've never done that again. It's amazing (laughs) that we actually did it on on that occasion. It could not have been timed better. At this point in the day, Steve was kind of getting a little bit tired and I was the stronger, deeper diver. I told Steve, I'm going to rest up. You watch me. And I'm holding on to the back of the boat. Current's flowing past. I'm trying to relax every muscle in my body. Every muscle that you're tensing is burning oxygen. So I'm totally relaxed, chilling on the surface, and just waiting, doing nice, relaxed breaths like you do in yoga um, to oxygenate your body, lower your, your heart rate, and then for the last 30 seconds, I'm doing a series of breaths before my last giant breath, which is belly, chest, shoulder, and then going. And during that time of, of waiting for me, I think Steve got bored and made a dive. And I kind of noticed it out of the corner of my eye and didn't think much of it because there were pelagic fish, wahoos and mackerel and rainbow runners and stuff that would come by every once in a while. So I was like, he's just, He's just going to shoot something shallow, or he's just going to look, or whatever. Like, I, I know he's focused on watching me because my next dive is probably going to be over 100 foot So, I kick down nice and slow. When you make a perfectly efficient, relaxed dive, as soon as you hold your breath and invert and start kicking down, you can do three feet per second for your dive. So, to get to 90 feet, it's going to take you 30 seconds. you sit down there and relax and my general routine is just about that it's like 30 seconds down spend 30 or 45 seconds down and then 30 seconds back up so my average dive is about a minute and a half minute 45. after about you know 25 30 seconds i'm down at 70 80 feet and sitting there waiting and a nice school of snappers came up there was four like really good fish that at the time, would have been one of my best Kubera uh, snappers. I'm sitting there looking at these snappers, and my mind has always been so focused on records. And I, I always say, like, in order to get a hundred-pound fish, you got to let all the ninety-pound fish swim past. And at the time, I knew the record was a few pounds off of one that we had seen that had a huge white mark on its face. So down there, say. 30 seconds or so, and I'm drifting, you know, from 75 feet down. So it's towards the end of my dive. I've got this school of snapper here, uh, but I still haven't seen the big one, the big one with the white spot on its face. And that's the one I really wanted. So I'm um, getting ready to head to surface. So I was like, I'm going to go ahead and, and shoot one of these other snapper. Just then, out of the corner of my eye, I catch a glimpse of white. And I turn to look, and in the distance... 60 or 70 plus feet away is the white handle of Steve's gun, which is still loaded, heading straight for the bottom like a rocket. And I was like, oh, God, that's not good. And I look, and above that, just on the edge of my visibility, is Steve in a seated position floating down towards the bottom. And I immediately know that he has blacked out. When you hold your breath too long and you're on land, eventually you're going to pass out. But on land, your body is going to know that you're outside. There's air against your face. You're going to take another breath. In the water, your body also knows that, hey, I'm in the water. Your body has a um, kind of a self-preservation system that protects you. And your vocal cords closed, so you're not taking in any water. And basically, it's like closing your your laptop. It goes into a sleep mode. So you pass out, you're not conscious, your heart is still beating, but you're not breathing. So this is the state that Steve is in. The water was 180 feet deep and he was sinking at such a rate that I could not go to the surface and take another breath and come down and get him because he would be gone forever. I knew then that I had one chance and that was right now To try and save him at the very least recover his body we didn't have any scuba tanks on the boat we had no way of getting him i have no one else on the surface no one else to help me him and i were the only divers so i dropped my weight belt and i kicked steadily towards him he is maybe 60 or 70 feet away which is a huge distance to swim horizontally underwater even if i had been planning to do that on a dive And then I knew that I had 30 seconds of breath to get back to the surface. Having to tack on that additional 20 seconds working, like having to kick horizontally, is a big deal. And one second makes a difference. Normally, when you help somebody that is blacked out, you go and grab them and bring them to the surface. And you can imagine the exertion it would take to bring someone's body up from 70 or 80 feet, which is where he would have been like when I got to him. And I knew there was just no way, like it was absolutely impossible for me to do that. Like 100%, I would have died too and no one you know, would have ever found us. As I'm closing the distance towards him, in my mind, I'm like, The only option I have here is to shoot him. We had talked, you know, over the years with different, you know, friends around the world that in a situation like this, it was totally hopeless that we would just shoot each other. And at least then you'd be rigidly connected to him. The guy'd probably be pretty mad at you for shooting him, but at least you saved his life and you were attached to him. So I started kicking towards Steve. So now, and this is going through my mind in milliseconds, I'm trying to calculate can I get to him who's pretty far away and then from there go to the surface and in retrospect I knew that I probably couldn't do it but knowing that this was the only chance that I was going to have to be able to get a hold of him and secure him kind of overshadowed that and I knew that I had to do something. I had to try because I figured he's going to die either way. As I got about halfway there, I was like, I'm going to shoot him in the calf. I'm a pretty good shot. I'm going to shoot him in the calf. That way there's no major arteries or anything in there. I I can punch through it and I'll have a good hold of him. So as I'm getting closer to him, I get about 25 feet away and his whole body rotates towards me. And my heart just sank because there's no way I'm shooting him, in, you know, in the chest or the abdomen or the thigh. And I was worried that the shin bones would be too hard to punch through at the distance. And I didn't have any more breath. I didn't have any more time. So I made split second decision and aimed just in front of his toes and shot him through the fin. As soon as I shot, I let go of my spear gun and now the line is attached to the boat and I look to the surface and I'll never forget, I'll never forget that feeling when I looked at the surface and knew that I wasn't going to make it either. Just absolute, the most dreadful feeling I've ever felt in my life, seeing the surface knowing how much air I had and knowing there was no way I was going to make it. I think I was probably 80 foot down at the time and I kicked away immediately and thought back to my training and my free diving that I'd done and went into the absolute most efficient, perfect technique I possibly could and that is your hands love your head, tight against your ears, hands overlapping, and just basically making yourself a perfect arrow. And started kicking steadily up, trying to relax, sniffing the air out of my mask as I went up, trying to get every little bit of it. And I hit the surface, and with my first breath, screamed at the boat, which is the absolute worst thing to do. You need to take recovery breaths and get the CO2 out of your system and get air back in. So when I screamed like that, I started to pass out myself and again I remembered the freediving training and when pilots pull G's when they're flying their jets to keep from passing out they do something called a hook breath which is and you do five of those and it pressurizes brings out O2 back in gets the CO2 out and those breaths saved my life. Because when I surfaced, I was more than 100 foot behind the boat, down current, and away from you know, the guys and anybody that could help me. So now I'm, I'm conscious and I'm hauling ass for the boat. I'm swimming as hard as I can for the boat, yelling at them the whole way. Cut the anchor line, pull it up, cut the anchor line, Steve's on it. Those guys are cranking like crazy. They're hooting and hollering, thinking they've got you know the fish of a lifetime that I've just speared, this giant 100-plus cubera snapper. I climb on the back of the boat, immediately start throwing coolers and bean bags and crap off the back of the boat to make room and telling them, cut the anchor line, get on the radio, call the Coast Guard, crank this up. It has Steve on it. He's blacked out. We're going to have to revive him. I need you guys to help me. And they're looking at me like, what they're they're just they can't even wrap their heads around it so they're cranking i mean this rod is bent like we got the fish of a lifetime coming up and up comes steve backwards spin first and would grab his ankle grab his arms and pull him into the boat his skin was the worst color blue gray of death i've ever seen He was bleeding from his eyes, his ears, his nose, and out of his mouth was this orange, foamy, horrible blood just foaming out of his mouth. He had a white rash guard on at the time, and within a couple seconds, like his whole rash guard was orange. So we pull him up on the back of the boat, and I lay him on the back of the boat. And you can imagine like my adrenaline was, you know, going pretty hard. So I checked to see if he has a pulse and he had a very very faint pulse he wasn't breathing i took his mask off and when someone does black out the quickest easiest way to bring them back is to blow across their cheeks because you have sensors in your cheeks that tell you hey i'm i'm in the air i can breathe so i blew across his cheeks you know opened his airway tapped on his cheek and i was talking to him say breathe steve breathe you're okay breathe so I did two or three cycles of that, and he was 100 percent unresponsive. In spearfishing, I've saved nine or 10 people now. Every single other person that I've helped recover from a blackout within the first two breaths has come back. They would come back immediately. In my mind, I'm like, this is really, really bad. Like, I've never seen anything like this. So. I open his airway again. Nothing's happening. So there was so much orange foam in his mouth, like this bloody foam. I was like, maybe I'll roll him on his side. So I rolled him on his side, and just this horrible orange foam is just leaking out of his mouth. And just as I'm getting ready to do rescue breaths, which is, you know, like the CPR breaths, he goes... And I was like, oh my God, that was, that was like the death, you know, the death breath that you hear about and you read about. And he did that (sighs) the one time and there was a pause (sighs) and he took what I would say is a 1% breath. I blew on his face hard again, said, breathe, Steve, breathe he took a little bit more of a breath and that orange foam was just coming out and you could hear it like just gurgling in his lungs. Like there's no room in his lungs, you know, for, for even any air. So he started breathing slowly like that. 1%, two and 5% breaths, 10%, 15%. And he's still unconscious. And I got him down into the boat. We got the anchor line off. We got the Coast Guard on on the radio. And I told the guys, just as fast as you can go, head towards Tampa, head towards land. Coast Guard helicopter was on its way. So he's unconscious for 15 or 20 minutes. Still that orange foam's coming out. And finally, he kind of comes to. And the first thing he said is thank you. And uh, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you black out and you're unconscious, you have amnesia. So people that have blacked out don't remember anything. So last thing he remembers, he was you know, 10, 15 feet from the surface and then lights out. And this is the next thing, is me holding him in, in my arms. And I held him and, uh, and we, we zoomed in as fast as that boat could go and the helicopter came when we were about you know 40 miles offshore lowered the basket put him in the basket and I'd been on the radio with them trying to explain to the coast guard the whole time he's blacked out it's a free diving thing he needs oxygen immediately and you just got to get him to the hospital so they lower the basket put him in the basket in the front of the boat lift him off put him in and they just poof they're out of sight they're gone and I just sat down in the boat and just totally broke down, and couldn't really talk to anybody in the boat, and um, it was it was tough. So Steve got to got to the hospital. Um, he was in the ICU for three or four days. His lungs were almost completely full of fluids, and there was a big risk of secondary drowning. So he was in there for a while. Um, he made a full recovery, no brain damage or anything. He played football at University of Florida for another two years or so. And him and I are still friends. He's actually my insurance broker and a, and a really good buddy of mine. We still dive together. The tough thing about blackouts and uh, freediving is you're basically watching your, your friend die. And it's all on you in that moment to make the right decisions in a very short period of time to save their lives. I wish I never had had to, to shoot him in the fin, but I'm glad it turned out the way it did, obviously. It's the best shot of my life.
0: I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, it's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H E L P.com.